attention, please. This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears body to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Yeah. Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Welcome back to Trenis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and right now I'm going through the six, uh, the six, I was about to say six issue miniseries, but that's not actually what this is. Uh, this is, uh, in fact, it's not even, it's episodes, but it's not even six episodes. It's actually five episodes. I'm going through a five episode mega series called This Is The End. Basically, I think we all remember this uh, trend in comics from the 1990s when the main hero was fired, murdered, or otherwise chased out of his job in favor of someplace else, or some or someone else, I should say. And I gotta tell you, those stories are freaking awesome. And so, what better subject matter could could there be? at this stage in the game for me. So what I wanted to do was, first of all, talk about the Doomsday storyline, Superman Doomsday. I realize that the trade paperback has a different title, but the comics that I paid money for, damn it, they're called Doomsday, so that's what I go by. And to help me out is no less a podcasting talent than Sean Engel himself, former host of Just One of the Guys. Welcome back to the show, sir. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on with this. This is this is not really out of my wheelhouse because at the time I was collecting the Superman books, but since my purvey is pretty much Green Lantern, mm-hmm. this is this is a nice sort of, you know, not really palate cleanser, but a nice sort of twist for me doing this to get to talk about Superman. You know, I I would have expected you to go for the traditional and get Mike Bailey on here. But since he's done such an awesome job covering it over on uh, From Crisis to Crisis, uh, I'm certain he's he's pretty much talked out about this. So I'm glad that I'm going to get an opportunity to talk about the death of Superman uh, story because it's it, it is, as you said, it is just one of the best. I, I agree with you on that. And honestly, the thought did cross my mind to send uh, Bailey a message about all of this. And uh Michael, you happen to be listening. Uh, my rationale for doing this was was exactly what you just said, Sean, that he's already done what I think is probably going to be the definitive discussion and analysis of this show, uh, not the show of this uh, of this storyline, asking him to come onto my show and then do what what can only be a lesser version. It just seemed illogical. And it also seemed illogical to invite you on to talk about Emerald Twilight. So why not uh, have you on to talk about Doomsday? And, you know, the beauty of it is if somebody is absolutely positively determined to tie this back to Green, uh, to Green Lantern somehow, well, as I'm sure you probably know, that's not hard to do with this storyline. So anyway, uh, this just seemed like the more logical thing to do. So and as I say, I'm really happy to have you on the show. And um, just for those listening, I'm going to pull back the curtain a little bit and say that 
Sean and I were actually supposed to get together yesterday to talk about this, but um, I had what can only be called a vehicular mishap as I was driving down the road. I was basically on my way back home. I was armed with my tacos, and that was going to be my lunch, and then or late breakfast, really. And then I, uh, Sean and I, we were going to sit down, talk about all things Doomsday, and then, as I say, uh, vehicular mishap. So uh, anyway, that's uh, that's kind of the uh, backstory to all of this. Now, as to I guess what we're here to talk about, what I've noticed is. If you go up to just any average comic book collector, comic book reader, and say, "Hey, tell me your story about strangers with uh, strangers in paradise," they probably don't have much of a story there. Or if you say, "Hey, I want to know where you were and what you were doing the first time you heard about Why the Last Man," they probably don't have much of a story there. Everybody has an opinion about Doomsday. Everybody's got a story about where they were, what they were doing, when they heard what was coming. Vis-a-vis, DC's going to kill off Superman. So, Sean, I'm going to put you on the spot and say, where were you and what were you doing, and how did you react to news of Superman's pending demise? Well, at the time, I was, uh, like, in my, probably in my junior year of college, uh, I was collecting comics regularly. I was not really collecting the Superman books as regularly as I would. Um, basically I was doing justice league and green lantern, of course. And because the justice league had suddenly moved to the Superman led justice league, there was this one issue where in the, in the, uh, justice league book, Superman and the rest of the league were fighting this crazy arm tied behind his back, monster who was just wrecking havoc and just basically brutalizing the entirety of the justice league going through characters like guy Gardner and Bloodwind and booster gold and just completely massacring them and even superman was having a problem with this and i was like wow this is something epic so i went to my local comic shop talked with the guys up there and they said oh that's part of this story arc called the death of superman i was like with the death of superman they're going to kill superman and they're like, yeah, that's what, what that's what we've heard. So they said, well, where can I find out more about this? And they said, well, it's in the Superman books. We've got the back issues over here, of course, because, uh, you know, it's the 90s. They had already bumped the price up for the uh, <laughs> issues of like Man of Steel and I think Adventures of Superman that had come out before this mm-hmm. up to like six bucks in a copy. Uh. So I paid for those so I could get the story. And I collected the entire story, and what I loved about it was it didn't start out as as anything other than a regular Superman story. Mm-hmm. The first Man of Steel uh, issue, I guess number 18, where Superman – or where Doomsday technically debuted. He wasn't just a cameo. You know, That was essentially uh, part of the ongoing story in Man of Steel with Superman dealing with the underworlders and all that. But – it really it really caught my eye that DC was going to take this kind of risk and take what is their trademark character, their character that I think everyone identifies specifically with and kill him off. And that that to me was a really bold concept. And the it, you know, it got me into the Superman. It got me into collecting the Superman book probably for the first time because it was just 
that interesting a concept that DC would go forward with this. Um, I've got a story, you know, that I'll tell later on, you know, once we get to the actual issue where the death occurred that that kind of soured me on it. But I'll go ahead and if you want, I'll let you tell uh, what happened when uh, when you found out about this. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Basically, it was a Saturday morning, as I recall, uh, October or something like that or September. I forget exactly when, but. Um, somehow this was a major news headline. This was a major news item that uh, came out, and somehow I was asleep under all the right rocks. I was living in all the right caves. I somehow did not get the big announcement, right? And so I want to say it was probably it had to have, it had to have been at least a couple of days after the fact. Um, it was a Saturday morning. I was hanging around in uh, the den, just watching TV. I believe it was uh, cartoons of some kind. If I had to guess, I would say it might have been Darkwing Duck because I was a huge Dark uh, Darkwing Duck uh, fan. And at a time in life, I think when kids are starting to get a little bit insecure with, uh, you know, cartoons and as God knows Disney, it was. Uh, but I still really liked. Darkwing Duck, and so I was probably watching uh, a dark an episode of Darkwing Duck because it did have a Saturday morning run, and my grandmother, who happened to be in town visiting at the time, uh, basically, I remember she she was flipping through the newspaper and just got a little bit hysterical when she came across one particular section. She called me into the kitchen and basically with no real preamble or anything like that, not letting me read the story for myself, she said, they, whomsoever they are, they are going to kill Superman. And I, and my first thought was, you know, this whole thing about doing a, a movie called Superman 5, even, even in 1992, I mean, there was still, there was always some bullshit gossipy story that, yeah, that's what's coming next. You know, the next Superman movie is going to be Superman 5. And so that's what I thought she was talking about. You know, I was like, yeah, I know they killed it, man. Uh, we've They've been trying forever to get to get that movie going. And uh, yeah, so far, no dice. And she said, no, 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 this is going to be a story in the comics. And this was my my Brody from Mallrats moment where I was just sitting there asking myself, how the fuck could something like this come out and be like a major news headline and somehow I missed it but somehow I missed it and honestly it stories like this with the national media they 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 were done differently then than really even they are now where they pretty much tell you all the bullshit that's going to happen in the story and now there's almost no point in buying the comic book mhm this was a, a totally new idea at the time. You know, the idea that mass media will take notice of comics as something other than a novelty. Hey, these things are still being printed. <laughs> and so there was just nothing really to be known at the time. All anybody knew is Superman is going to die and it looks like some kind of spike covered gray Incredible Hulk looking thing is going to be what does the job. And that was pretty much it. And, you know, looking back at it, what we're led to believe is that the people involved in all of this, they were not ringleaders, they were not showmen. 
they were trying to, uh, as much as they could, not tell anything. Um, you know, they didn't want to say, no, this isn't happening. They didn't want to deny it because it's just not true. But at the same time, they also didn't want to – they didn't want to give give away the store. They wanted to have something to talk about at the time that the comics were actually starting to come out. And we were at least a month or two away from that. And so, you know, it's – again, it's just the total opposite of the way that these stories are done now where – I remember when uh, uh, the the uh, Human Torch died in, fant- in uh, the Fantastic Four comics. There was almost no point in picking up the comic. Now I was I've never been a big Fantastic Four guy, so I wasn't going to buy it anyway. But I just remember that there was so much bullshit out there about the comic that the comic itself at this point is almost secondary, you know, and. I, I just I cannot overemphasize the fact that that's not the way that things were done back in 1992, when you know if if mass media ever took notice of comics, it was only for novelty, and usually only to take shots. This was a little bit different. I mean, you, it, it, I I would almost want to best compare it to finding out that the president of the United States has some kind of terminal disease and he's going to die any day now. I mean, the way that people reacted to this, it was way out of proportion to the fact that, yes, this is in fact a work of fiction. People did not treat it as a work of fiction. I mean, they were, they, you, you can't really overlook the speculator aspect and God knows we're going to talk about that. Mm-hmm. But more the way that Joe Sixpack, the man on the street, reacted to this it was personal in ways I don't think anybody was necessarily expecting. I mean, was I mean, how does that line up with your experience? No, I agree. That's that's how a lot of people who I knew in the comic collecting community felt like this. You're you're very correct. Nowadays, when you get a story about something happening in a comic, it feels contrived. It feels like a way to boost sales or to promote the next movie that's coming out or to promote the next ongoing story arc that's happening. Like you said, when Johnny when they when they mentioned Johnny Storm was going to die in the Fantastic Four, I was like, okay, great. How long until he comes back? Because you expect that nowadays at this point in time. And yes, you can say, you know, heroes have died and come back before, you know, I know that prior to this, you covered uh, on your show, the death of Superman from the silver age. Mm -hmm. And you talked about that. Now that was an imaginary story. In this new DC universe, in this post crisis universe, imaginary stories weren't happening. So when this was announced, it had weight to it. It had a definite feel that this was going to actually stick because that seemed to be the way that DC was working at this time. And the fact, like I said before, that they were going to take this iconic character, the pillar of the DC universe, and have him die, you know, granted in a way that's defending his city and defending the planet essentially from this rampaging beast was uh, an incredibly epic thing. And I think it affected people in ways that, you know, in ways that are, you know, different than how they are today. I tend to agree. And that actually leads into something that, you know, I think I don't know that I would have mentioned otherwise, but there was a lot of debate. I, as I recall, even among fans like collectors, you know, how permanent is this? Because 
it may seem cynical, like Sean was saying, it may seem cynical now. But, you know, the weird thing is, you know, this story and this announcement came at a time when DC killed crypto permanently. Mm -hmm. DC killed Kara Zarel, and at the time she at least hadn't been brought back yet. It was, for all intents and purposes at that time, permanent. They'd killed off Jason Todd, again, at that time, permanently. And so the I, the suspicion a lot of people couldn't quite shake is that, look, this is about this is going to be about as permanent as a cold. Just wait. But other people were thinking, you know what? This may very well be it. And so things like that, you know, the sort of word of mouth aspect. I mean, what do you suppose that was doing to you know the anticipation that people were having for this story? I mean, I think that kind of speaks for itself. But the other thing that that I think tends to get, uh, you know, at least somewhat underplayed is the fact that, you know what? And Sean, no offense, if if this announcement had been made about Guy Gardner or Corey from the Teen Titans or any of a number of other characters, I don't think there would have been quite that same investment. But when it's Superman, I mean, everybody knows Superman. And to some degree or another, I would say that everybody is. They're a fan of Superman, at least in the sense that he's the guy that got the got, that got the ball rolling mm-hmm. with the whole superhero thing. Now, people may like other characters more than Superman, but at the very bare minimum, they've got to give Superman his due in that he's the he's the founder of all of this. And so for so for it to come out that it's his name that's on that that's on the list here. He's the one that's going to die. I think that hits harder than it would, even for as as cool a character as, say, Starfire might be. Ultimately, let's face it, nobody gives a shit. Superman, yeah, people give a shit, you know? Yeah, it's you're exactly right. And I, I don't take any offense. Guy Gardner dying, people, you know, you ask most people who, even people who are associated with comic books, you know, tangentially, who go see the DC and Marvel movies, you ask them who Guy Gardner is, they're going to uh, address you with a with a giant question mark pointed over their head. They're not going to know who that is. But I think you can, Superman is iconic. Superman, everyone, uh, well, maybe I shouldn't say everyone, a majority of people at least know who Superman is. Mm-hmm. If you if you can go into any store and see T-shirts with the S symbol on them, you know this person has a following or at least a sort of face value idea that people can get behind and people know about. It's going to make a difference when they say that this person is going to die. That rather than if they, you know, even even more so when they decided uh, to kill Captain America, as much as that was sort of played up in the media and as big as Captain America is now with the movies and everything, even that pales into comparison, even with Captain America being around for now, you know, 60 plus years. Yeah. So Superman is one of these icons that is far bigger than anything in comicdom and the idea of having a story that either 
kills him or gets him out of the comics for whatever period of time is just such an interesting concept and such a, a, a vastly compelling concept that it couldn't have done anything more than just make me interested in wanting to collect it. Right. Yeah, <clears throat> I tend to agree. And um, I guess as far as stories are concerned, this is a pretty easy one to summarize. And so uh, if you can just indulge me for a few seconds, I will summarize Superman Doomsday. Doomsday comes. He sees the JLA. He beats the shit out of him. Then he and Superman beat each other to death. The end. Yeah, it's not it's not um, it's not a very deep story. It's interestingly paced. Um, one of the things that I got on the reread of this that I wouldn't have gotten unless I had listened to uh, Michael and Jeffrey's coverage of it over on from Crisis Crisis was the progression of panels and the panels layout throughout the books. Starting, I think, with the uh, fifth issue before that, mm -hmm. uh, the fifth issue before uh, Superman number 75. Right. The panel layouts, all, each page were five panel layouts. Then from that and to the next book, there were four panel layouts going down to three, then two, then Superman 75 was essentially just a bunch of splash pages. I thought was that was a really interesting concept that I didn't catch until I actually went back and looked at the books and, and saw that. That was an interesting idea of storytelling. But yeah, the story is basically Doomsday, this character no one knows about, no one knows whether he's where he's come from. They don't know whether it's a genetically engineered creation of LexCorp, whether it's from the Cadmus project, whether it's an alien being, we have no idea. It's just this rampaging murderous force that likes to crush birds and deer and basically destroy everything in its path. And even the might of the justice league with Superman combined can't take him down. And in the end, it's just Superman you know, doing what he does, garnering all his strength and punching the living shit out of him that is capable of stopping him. And it 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 depowers and destroys Superman so much. And it's the artwork throughout the story is amazing. I, I specific I particularly love, of course, I've always been the biggest fan of Grummet and Hazelwood and Dan Jurgens stuff. Not to dismiss John Bogdanov's stuff, um, but that that's been the stuff that I really love. And having that that last issue, seventy five with uh, that splash page, that is the definition of iconic. You don't get anything much better than that. And the, I thought it was uh, and 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 they definitely sold it up. This was one of the first comics that I remember getting, you know, polybagged with all those little extras, mm -hmm, Superman yes. armband, the, the funeral for a friend poster. I pulled it out of my long box you know, to read it. I still had the armband all folded up, had this, had the stamps, the trading card and everything. Yes. And, and it was, it, they really hyped this up to be something epic, which is why, and I, this this is the part that I mentioned previously, you know, in in my sort of history about this, mm -hmm. that kind of took me down about this. When I went to pick this up on, I guess it was, I'm assuming it was the Wednesday mm -hmm. when the comic came out. You know, I, I was waiting in line in Oklahoma City at my comic book shop. There wasn't like a huge line around the corner, but there were people lined up there to pick up the book. Mm -hmm. 
the store opened up at noon. The owner of the comic book shop, you know, came, you know, we, everyone came in, filed in the owner of the comic book shop came in and said, okay, everyone, we've got plenty of issues, but we'd like to keep it just one issue per person. You can either have the, uh, the collected or the, the bagged edition or the store, store-bought edition, which didn't have the accoutrements, the black arm and all that. Mm-hmm. And then he proceeded to say, oh, and by the way, in six months, they're going to bring Superman back. And I was like, God damn it. Ugh. Why do you do this? It was the typical Simpsons comic book nerd guy going, well, this is going to happen and Superman isn't really going to die. And I was like, it took all the wind out of the sails for the book for me mm-hmm. because up until this point I was in, I was really enjoying the story and it kind of, that's just a dick thing to do, dude. I'm sorry. It, it, well, it, it was, and it kind of diminished the epicness of the final battle. I was like, Oh wow. Superman's dead, but it's okay. He's coming back in six months. I mean, if I wouldn't have known that, and I would have found that out on my own, and I would have found that out through continuing to read the book. Mm-hmm. I think that would have been, uh, you know, and and not to diminish Funeral from the Friend and the Reign of the Superman story, because I picked that up and I've read that, and that is really a great bunch of stories. But the fact that this guy just came out at the at the moment where I was going to find out that Superman was going to die, and said, "Oh, don't worry about this shit." It's all going to be retconned here in about, you know, six months was just a real kick in the ass. And it didn't diminish the story because I went back. Like I said, I went back and when I went back and reread this, I found it to be really entertaining, amazing artwork and a really good story. It incorporated all the characters really well. And I that was the thing that I really dislike, I think, nowadays about comic reporting and the sort of attitude behind comics. It's like they want to tell you everything that's going to be happening prior to it happening Mm -hmm. in preview magazines. Now you can find out three months, six months down the road, what's going to happen in your latest comic book, much to the point where you don't need to read the comic book. And that for me destroys the comic reading experience. I would rather, find out something is going to change in the comic book on my own than being told by a, the media or b some dickweed at the comic shop. I agree. And like, the thing is, I mean, there were, there were no official announcements at the time. I mean, there's no way that guy could have known that for sure. And I truly do think that guy just said that just to be an asshole. And that's, that's just a real jerk thing to do, man. I'm sorry. But, um, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. I was able to get Man of Steel number 18 off the shelf. And that was about as far as I was able to make it. I think I may have gotten Superman number 74 as well. But I, I, that may have actually been about as far as I was able to go. And then what happened was, um, number one, I was just, I was a kid and I was having to compete with you know, actual collectors who, who let's face it, they have cars, they have their own uh, jobs and, you know, their own budgets and stuff. And they weren't depending on their parents, you know, for rides and then funds for comics. And the other thing was I ended up getting in sort of deep shit with uh, 
uh, my parents over the fact that at the time my grades sucked out loud. And so I wasn't able to uh, follow every single one of these uh, story, uh, every single one of these comics as they as they came out. You know, like I said, the competition, it was just balls to the wall because, I mean, guys, it's again, it's easy to forget now. But, you know, at the time we were fully into, you know, this whole 90s speculator craze where Mm -hmm. it was impossible to find certain comics, you know, even as they were coming out, you know, but. You add in, you know, the difficulty of, you know, I'm not only up against the speculators, I'm now up against, you know, just the the limitations of being an 11-year-old kid in 1992, and I'm now up against, you know, the fact that my parents, you know, had, a, you know, kind of put a, set up a sort of a comic book moratorium, you know, no more of these until you get your grades and stuff sorted out. And so I actually missed a decent chunk of this story, and... This again, it should have been a signpost for me, but I I still didn't completely understand how special this story was, even when I was holding in my hands a trade paperback of the Doomsday storyline, and it had come out. It may have actually come out in November of 1992, but certainly it was out no later than uh, December. Mm-hmm. And I think the uh, the rationale behind that was. It was nothing more complicated than DC knew there was a lot of demand for this story. And it was even among people who are, shall we say, outside of the traditional comic book market. And I'm not talking about the direct market. I mean, even newsstand. You know, they wanted to get bookstores as well. And so that, I think, is why they released a trade paperback so soon as they did. And so that was how I was able to finally piece together the rest of the story and figure out just what the fuck it was that was going on. And the reason I mention that is number one, I was able to get it relatively quickly, which should tell you something about how quickly this trade paperback was produced. But number two, the trade paperback is probably the shittiest way to read Superman number 75 mm-hmm. because in, in the regular comic, there's this huge fold out page you know, yes. where Superman's uh, being cradled in Lois's arms. And then you fold out the page and he's keeled over and died. And it's basically utilizing some part of the original page. But when you fold it out now, it's you're, you're supposed to infer that, you know, they've moved. You know, Superman's fallen over. And you don't get that in the trade paperback. You basically turn the page... And now Superman's fallen over. And it's still a powerful moment, but it doesn't work. That's one of those things that, you know, people ask, you know, well, what can what can a print comic do that a digital comic can't or a trade paperback can't? Look no further. Yeah, I, I fully agree. And in fact, going back and rereading that, I'd forgotten about that. And, you know, we've all seen the images. We've all seen the image of Lois cradling Superman in her arms with the 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 cape tattered on the on the piece of on the flagpole or the piece of metal jutting out there and i had forgotten that that was a a fold out that that came to the next image mm-hmm. of superman dead and lois just b- beside herself wailing mm-hmm. because he's died and you're right i can't imagine trying to capture that same sort of 
feel in a digital comic. You know, yes, digital comics are nice. They're easy to carry. You've got your tablet. You can have dozens, even hundreds of them on there. Take them wherever you want to go. You don't have to bag and board them. That's nice. But you don't get the visual feel that you do when you're reading it in this comic. So there is something to be said about having actual comics that can do this kind of uh, artistic design that digital can't. Yeah, I agree. And it's it's just it's one of those little signpost moments. And I didn't even know to tell you, you know, just how crazy this whole speculator thing had gotten. Right. I didn't even know that there was a fold out to that until I went over to a friend's house. And I guess he thought he would impress me by having he said, yeah, I've got the issue where Superman dies. And I thought, hey, that's kind of cool. I liked it because, you know, there's something about like I as you were saying, kind of the visceral tactile sensation of holding the comic book in your hands. So I thought, yeah, I'd like to go over there and take a look at that because I totally misunderstood what he meant. I thought he meant he had the ultra super special polybagged version with the arm. And I thought I'd love to have a look at all the goodies and stuff that are inside there because again, nineties. And what he pulled out was not just the regular newsstand edition, which is cool. I mean, I'm not taking anything away from that, but not exactly what – that's not the impression he gave, shall we say. But the other thing is that this isn't a second printing. It's Well, actually, it's not a first printing. It's not a second printing. It's not even a third printing. He had a fourth fucking printing of Superman number 75. That's how much they reprinted this stuff. Mm-hmm. And – on the one hand, I mean, I tried – then as now, I tried to have uh, an attitude of comics as comics and, you know, I guess from a collector standpoint, what I'm buying is the story. I'm not buying the comic per se. I'm buying the story and that's what I'm paying my money for. But even on that basis, I thought, shit, a fourth printing? Like like really? And – but it, nevertheless, it had that fold-out last page and that – that was a real revelation because I didn't even know that was in there. All I had was, like I said, the uh, trade paperback, and it just has that – that um, it, it's basically you just turn the page at the end of the uh, trade paperback, and you know that's what's in there. And <clears throat> and so I had no idea. So that part, you know, that was definitely awesome. But I hadn't really understood at that – I guess and maybe until that moment how fucking big this story must truly be. Four fucking reprintings? Are you out of your mind? But nevertheless, I mean, you know, that's that's the way that things shook out. And I guess sort of as a postscript to that story, I went through a phase probably around, you know, 2012, around there, where I was just buying people's collections off of eBay. I was just buying them, you know, just rapid fire, right? And usually these are just bulk listings or you're led to believe that this is just a bulk listing. The stuff is completely unorganized. It's unsorted, but it's interesting how the most important or the most historical or the most valuable or whatever issues conveniently are missing. You know, they'll have a, like a, an ongoing run of daredevil or something, but somehow all the Frank Miller issues are missing. Yeah. Big fucking coincidence. I'm sure, you know, Mm -hmm. but, uh, one of the things that was listed in there though, was, 
Superman number 75, the fourth printing. So now I have a copy of it, too. <laughs> so, uh, nice. Yeah. Well, and that, that says something about the uh, – maybe I'm not really certain if this says something about the speculation of this, but just how popular this comic was. This was the biggest selling comic of 1992. Yes. Bar none. And – I actually tried to get uh, some information on how many it sold. I've got to assume that it was more than a million. But I've uh, went and checked. There's a, a webpage called Comicron.com that does sales figures for, you know, for I, I think from 1996 on, it's got monthly sales figures. And prior to that, it's just got the number one issue for the month. Mm-hmm. Looking at 1992, the... And basically the entirety of 1992 up until November is dedicated to X-Men comics, Spawn, Spider-Man and Spider-Man 2099, Mm. Cable, Venom, and Wetworks. Mm. Superman comes around in November 1992, and it is the one DC comic on this list. Everything else is Marvel, Marvel, Marvel. And it's... It, it, it's it's the weird it's the weird thing at this time. Yes, at this time Marvel was had all the big name comic book creators. It had Jim Lee, it had Rob Liefeld, Todd McFarlane. You know, Spawn number one had come out, Image had come out. You had this era of people collecting all these you know issued ones because they knew it was going to send their kids through college. And then you had the Superman number seventy five, which a lot of people probably thought was in the same vein and trying to cash in on this whole speculator thing and be this big iconic moment when honestly it's just a good story. Mm -hmm. It's not out there to be, you know, the big hot artist with the new number one that's going to sell, you know, half a million copies and eventually, you know, no one's going to remember it. I think Superman 75 is a far greater idea and a far greater story than that because it broke through all this hype of the speculators and actually delivered what I think is a really good story. So uh, that's one of the things that I think is, you know, the most impressive thing about it. Yeah, I tend to agree. And that sort of leads into, or that touches upon, um, I guess the, the origin of doomsday as a storyline and, you know, I don't want to dwell too much on that, but at, at the same time, we can't really ignore it, that the story goes that originally what was planned for, you know, 1992 as the big event for Superman was going to be Clark Kent marrying Lois Lane. And that was going to – I've heard it, you know, different ways. That was going to happen in Superman number 75 – or it was going to happen in Adventures of Superman number 500. It was going to be one of the two. And honestly, I've always thought it was easier to believe that it was probably going to happen in Adventures of Superman number 500. That's just a nice round number. To me, from a marketing standpoint, that just makes more sense. But there was a TV show in development at the time called Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, which was predicated upon... I guess the sort of romantic aspect of the Superman mythos where the story primarily centers on Clark and Lois 
at the Daily Planet. They're working on stories. They're solving mysteries. And yeah, Superman's in it, but he's not the front and center character that you would think he'd be in a more conventional type of Superman TV show. I guess as a comparison, Superman in Lois and Clark gets a lot less screen time than Superboy does in the Superboy TV show that had been going on up to that point. And so it was thought it would be good corporate synergy to have Superman, or rather uh, Clark and Lois get married in the comics at the same time that Clark and Lois get married on the show. People keep calling this corporate synergy. Now me, I'm a bit more cynical. I tend to think that Somebody uh, from the production office realized, you know what? If they marry those characters in the comics before our show even starts, then sooner or later we're going to marry these characters and people are just not going to give a shit. That, I think, was a much bigger motivation you know, than this whole idea of let's do it all at the same time. It'll be good for everybody. I don't think so. I think that basically somebody from the TV show wanted to protect their turf. And, or what they saw as their turf. And so maybe I maybe you know what? Maybe I'm wrong. There's absolutely no evidence I have for that. I'm just going off of my own intuition. But I'm just saying that if it was me, if I was developing a that type of a Superman show and I thought the comics might steal my thunder, I might pull rank myself. So that I think is what's going on. But whatever happened, happened. And so Mike Carlin and the other uh, the other members of the creative team were basically facing a situation where they have to develop a new story to be their big event for 1992, and so apparently the best the best idea that anybody had was killing Superman, and and honestly I think there's a certain amount of how how shall I put this there's a certain amount of bravado and. I guess kind of balls that goes with being young that if like if these people had been in their, you know, their upper forties and somewhere in their fifties or something like that, I don't know that they would have been willing to take this kind of a risk, but there's something about being in your twenties and in your thirties. You think, yeah, fuck it. I can do that. Why not? You know, fools rush in where angels fear to tread and that, when you really think about it, that was a great recipe for a shit hack job story where you make Superman a virtual laughing stock. Now, what, what, what I think we can say for sure, and this kind of goes back to your point, people wanted to call this a, a very cynical, very commercial, I would say almost exploitative type of story that took advantage of the speculator market, and let's face it, people's nostalgia. And my answer to that is always going to be that I love Tom Grummet. He's a, as far as I'm concerned, he's one of my favorite comic artists of all time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whether he's drawing Superman or if he's drawing Robin or, or whatever it is that, that he's working on, I'm interested in what Tom Grummet's doing. That having been said, though, he's not a marquee name. If you want to make a, just an ultra-commercial comic, that's going to sell like hotcakes in the early 1990s. Tom Grummet is the exact guy you don't hire to draw your story. And, you know, Dan Jurgens, I think he was respected in the industry at the time. 
I do believe it would be a mistake to say that he was then the superstar that he that he became as a direct result of this story. Uh, Jackson Geis, same thing. John Bogdanov, same thing. You know, these are not the people you'd hire to tell this ultra-commercial, ultra-exploitative type of story. I mean, you'd poach the people from Marvel. You'd pay them whatever you had to pay them. Get a superstar on these books. Get as much marquee value out of it as you possibly could. Because in the 90s, the understanding was that people didn't buy stories. They didn't buy comics. They bought talent. And nobody was out there queuing up for the next Tom Grummet issue or the next Jerry Ordway issue. Those comics, I'm sorry, people just weren't losing their minds over. So that's the, you know, that's what, that's always going to be my answer. Anytime somebody tries to say that, you know, this story is nothing but just cheap commercialism, bullshit. You know, these are not the, and I say this with respect. I'm, I'm saying this, you know, with admiration, you know, these guys were committed to character, to story, to what I think is everything that makes comics great. These are not the guys that you go to for crass commercialism. And so that's how I know that everybody's heart was in the right place with this storyline. But even if it wasn't, you know what? Fuck it. It's the 90s. Everybody else was getting rich. Why can't they? So either way you look at it, to me, it works. Yeah, I, I fully agree with you. This does not feel like we're putting the big name talent. It's not like Rob Liefeld, Cable, first issue, no feet. We're not going to show you any feet because he can't draw them. (laughs) Pectoral muscles the size of, you know, watermelons. It's ridiculous, but you'll love it. Rob Liefeld. No, this was the creators who've been writing the story for pretty much most of them since John Byrne had left doing the series. They know the characters. They know the how to write the story. They know how to get them right. And the fact that the story started out, this big epic story that would lead to the death of Superman, started out as just a subplot in the middle of a story that was going on in Man of Steel makes me think that they didn't expect this to be the story that they thought it was going to be. They didn't put this out as it was going to be the biggest comic book of 1990s or or specifically of 1992, maybe even of the 1990s. They just wanted to tell a good story and they did what any comic book creator with integrity would. They wrote a good story. They didn't put out speculate. They didn't put out, you know, their big flashy, hot artist, Jim Lee, Todd McFarlane type book. They just wrote a good story. And that's why I think this holds up at, you know, this holds up as a comic more than you would say cable number one, or even, you know, spawn number one, people aren't clamoring to, for, you know, people aren't clamoring for a new spawn movie. People are going to be clamoring for a new Superman movie. And Superman's going to have more strength in in the future than any of these hot comics from the 1990s. I agree. But the thing was, that wasn't – that really was not the conventional wisdom among the – I guess the, the, the comic book shop haunting fanboys – 
I don't, I mean, I'm not even sure what the fuck to call them. I mean, I, I can't really call them mall rats as such, but God knows that's a tempting title. But they were basically, I, I, I really do feel like, you know, history has vindicated not only the story, but me personally from the 90s when I was collecting Superman and loving it. And I truly did not understand where the other members of our fraternity were coming from. You know, with their boner for all things Todd McFarlane, I like Todd McFarlane. I think he's a good artist. He is not what they made him out to be. You know, I think I, I think you and I can probably agree on that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the thing about it that, honestly, it, it's kind of funny. You know, what you're one of the things that you've been very complimentary of is that this started off as just another story, almost as a subplot that was going on in Man of Steel number 18 that just mushroomed from there. And that was actually something that I kind of resented at the time because, honestly, it, what it comes down to is Superman, the Man of Steel as a title. That I just – I do not like that comic. I've never liked that comic. I've never liked Louise Simonson as a writer of Superman. I've never liked her subplots. I never liked all that underworld bullshit. I never liked Keith and Myra and that orphanage shit. I just I, – I didn't give a damn. All right, The one good thing about – the Man of Steel as a monthly comic was John Bogdanov doing his sort of Joe Shustery, John Sakella y type of Superman, the sort of George Reeves type throwback Superman. Mm-hmm. And that I liked. But, you know, it, when you move too far away from the art, when you start getting, getting into, you know, the blood and guts of story and whatnot, I just, I've always held Superman, the Man of Steel, just an absolute fucking disdain. And the fact that, number one, this is where the story starts, and number two, technically doesn't even really start here. It actually starts in uh, Superman uh, number 74. Or actually, you know what? You could argue the story really starts in Justice League of America, or sorry, Justice League America number 69. Mm-hmm. And then from there, comes back into the Superman titles with Superman number 74, and then that's where Superman's participation really begins. Although, even there, he's mostly on this sort of um, Sally, Jesse, Raphael type of uh, daytime news, not news show, uh, sort of daytime talk show uh, for a good bit of the um, for a good bit of the issue. And I don't know. I mean, it just on the one hand, that is so part and parcel of the way that Superman stories were done, especially in the 90s. You know, so there's an honesty to that. It's just the fact that it begins in Superman, the Man of Steel. I truly don't think I will ever be able to forgive that. I just I friggin' hate that 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 uh, that title. I've never liked it. Well, and I, I can say with my limited experience of of the Superman books at this time mm-hmm. that uh, aside from the art and John Bogdanov just drawing an immense, you know, just beefy, muscular Superman, mm-hmm. the the Man of Steel books never really caught me as much as the books that were done by Jurgens, that were done by uh, Tom Grummet and Doug Haleswood. Those were the ones that visually caught my eye and story-wise kept me interested as well. So I can understand your 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 disdain for the Man of Steel books and the story starting out there. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I uh, going to the point of the the Superman number 74 issue starting off with him being sort of interviewed on Cat Grant or the Cat Grant, the Cat Grant show, mm-hmm. and you get the uh, secondary plot of the Justice League going down to take, take down the, uh, 
you know, take down Doomsday. It, it, it does kind of come in in that era where we're getting more sensitive. And, you know, you talk, you know, the, the idea that they're trying to get a po- across in the interview is that Superman doesn't need to take down all these villains with violence, with punching. And that's kind of what they're trying to get across in this. There's mm-hmm. kind of a subplot of that. And it's interesting that, that at the end of the story, the way Superman has to take down the villain is by literally, literally punching the shit out of him. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're at this time period. It's it's the late 90s. There's an election going on. As you know, Bill Clinton is running for president against uh, George Bush the first, George H.W. Bush. Mm-hmm. There's the whole sort of touchy-feely, you know, I feel your pain type thing. And we're getting into this era where we're being we're trying to be a much more civilized type of country mm-hmm. and they're trying to portray this a little with Superman but it's interesting that even though Superman's voicing these kind of opinions of you know I I would rather work things out rather than have to go in and beat the crap out of someone that in the end the story is resolved by Superman literally beating the crap to crap out of someone and doing it so hard that he actually dies himself. So I, I thought that was, I don't know if that was necessarily ironic, but sort of different, you know, it sort of showed the, uh, ideal of the time. Yeah. And I, I, I get all of that. And you know what, you could even kind of see that as sort of meta commentary on goings on in comics at the time, you know, because God knows comics, I think in general, have never been all that genteel a medium, but certainly not in the early 90s when it was almost as though, like, if people like this really did exist, like, in the real world, like, people with these kinds of superpowers that were tearing the city up every single week, we'd fucking nuke them. I mean, sorry, but that's, you know, and so I I, I always kind of, well, not always, but I mean, like, looking back at it, I do kind of wonder, you know, was there a little bit of meta commentary on that? But... You know, in Justice League America number 69, you know, in all of that, um, I guess the news – I keep calling it a news show. God damn it. It's a talk show. But uh, anyway, the, the, it's a it's a talk show. One of the things that kind of worked for me about this, uh, about this little aspect of the story is that what we're seeing here is not Superman as superhero per se – this is more Superman as public figure, Su- uh, Superman as celebrity. And he gives very coy answers to certain things. You know, um, there's a moment, and this is on actually page number nine, um, where Cat tries to press Superman on his relationship with Guy Gardner. And Superman gives a very politician-type answer where he says, Mr. Gardner and I are colleagues. Though it's true our relationship is somewhat... I see. We do manage to get the job done, you know, and he's not confirming anything, but he's not really denying anything either. He's just trying to give a very politic type of answer. And this was it's one of those things that I don't think the Superman titles really did all that often of showing Superman as public figure that. I don't know, it just I I guess I hadn't really thought too much about Superman in those terms prior to reading this issue 
But I thought, you know what? If he does any kind of interview at all, he's got to be kind of careful about what he says. He doesn't want to shit talk his own teammates, but at the same time, he doesn't want to lie to people either, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's it's really apropos of nothing, at least as far as this story is concerned. It's just it's it's just one of those things that when you look back at it, you know, it's just that texture to a story that uh, I don't know. It's just I, I enjoy it. It kind of holds it all together for me. So um, but it, it's kind of as you say, it is it is funny, though, that, you know, the uh, all of this talk about you know, violence and whatnot, uh, is happening and, uh, you know, intercut with the justice league beating the crap out of doomsday, doomsday, beating the crap out of the justice league, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, that, that is, uh, I've always thought that was a kind of amusing. So now to get into, now, do you have too much more to say about doomsday as a story? Do you have more to say there? Or do you want to get into funeral for a friend? Um, uh, I think I've covered it. You know, it's it, it, it this as a story. Yes, it's very simplistic. You know, crazy monster comes to town, wrecks things up, beats up the Justice League. Superman takes him on. They, you know, they both die, mm-hmm. quote unquote. So yeah, the uh, I really don't have any more to say about that. And I'm glad you corrected me. I meant to say when I was talking about it, it is from the Justice League number sixty nine rather than Superman seventy four, where they had their review. So oh well. Culpa. Oh, well, I, I didn't even catch that. So, okay, good. I'm glad you did. So, um, Now, as far as a funeral for a friend is concerned, the thing that blows my mind, like to this day, I can understand uh, the Doomsday storyline, getting all of the, uh, the press and attention and whatnot it, that it did, all of the high sales and everything. It completely makes sense. I understand that, and it, it, it works for me. But... The thing to keep in mind is that there was little or no momentum lost, at least as far as sales figures are concerned, between Superman number 75 and then the onset of Funeral for a Friend. And it's only when you know you go back and you reread these issues that you understand just how well done, like not just from a plot point of view or a character point of view, from like a, a tone point of view, you know, that we start off literally right where Superman number 75 ended. The city's in shambles. There's a curfew that's going on. People are uh, scared shitless that this is going to lead to all kinds of mobs and looting and all this other bullshit that's going on. And in the middle of all of this, I mean, you've got basically all of, I guess, the pandemonium of what happens when a president dies or a, a pope dies, emperor, you know, basically any suitably famous and well-known leader when they die and just the confusion of it, you know, the, the, I I don't want to say bedlam of it, but the, I guess the mess, you know, of, uh, of all of that, the goings on with, you know, people processing, you know, their feelings, their emotions, uh, you know, their, their grief and mourning and all of that. And as you move through the story, you know, you go through the funeral and then, you know, uh, shenanigans with Superman's body and everything, you know, it being stolen by Cadmus. And it it feels like that by the time Funeral for a Friend ends, the city of Metropolis is starting to take a turn now. They're finally starting to truly recover from the events of Doomsday. It took two months of comic book publishing, but they're finally starting to 
put things back together a little bit and get back to normal as much as they're ever going to. And, you know, like I say, I mean, it's one thing to come up with a well-executed plot or characters that, you know, transition and grow from one issue written by somebody to another issue written by somebody else to another issue written by still somebody else, etc. But whenever you can so successfully transition tone, that is masterful storytelling, in my opinion. And to me, that's what I'm always going to remember about Funeral for a Friend. Not just how, oddly enough, how successful it was from a sales point of view, even though there's no hero, there's really no villain necessarily. And it's all just character, you know, and it's incredibly powerful. I really enjoy this story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that's one of the things that that also differentiates it from a lot of the big number one issues and the big speculator issues of the 1990s. They didn't just stop at Superman number 75 and say, this is the iconic thing and this is it and this is all you'll have to ever buy and read ever until the end of time. No, they had a progressive story after that that dealt with Superman not being around, mm. that dealt with his family having to deal with uh, Martha and Jonathan and what they had to go through. You know, the the heart attack of Jonathan. You know, you had the city of Metropolis and how it was dealing with the loss of Superman and Supergirl having to sort of take on the uh, role as Metropolis's protector. You had the Justice League and how they – dealt with all the this loss it's it's very it's very simpler similar to what they did in the exile storyline where after john byrne left the book and the uh execution of the uh you know parallel world criminals uh the parallel kryptonian criminals you had this storyline that dealt with what happened in that and progressed it on Mm -hmm. it would have been easy for the Superman writers just say, okay, here we are. Superman's dead. End of story. They had an idea of where to take this, and they had a story built up after this that was just as entertaining, if not more so, than what we had to the build up to the death of Superman. So Funeral for a Friend is is actually one of the better ideas that came out of the death of Superman because it deals with the ramifications of the loss of this iconic character and what it does, not only to the city of Metropolis, but essentially to the DC universe. What happens when Superman dies? So I, I agree with you. It's it's one of the great stories that came out of this. You know, it, it, as we were talking just now, you know, I'm not trying to sound insensitive. So if you think this comes off as insensitive, then, um, you know, a little bit of podcast editing, but uh, maybe in order there. But one of the things that just to kind of put this all in a in, in a little bit more modern point of view for a lot of listeners when i say 911 i don't mean you know just the act of planes crashing into buildings i mean later that night you know when the towers had fallen and you know by this point all of the casualties they'd probably They'd probably passed away by that point. You know, the attacks were over, and now we're all reacting to it. We are full bore reacting to it. You know, I know very few people who – look, I, I've never been to New York. I, I 
never visited the towers whenever they were standing. I never saw any of that. It's I just never had the chance to do that, right? But at the same time, everybody took that a little personally. You know, this was done not to buildings. This was done to us. And, you know, the, I kind of want to compare the tone of the first few issues of Funeral for a Friend to that same kind of just shock. You know, once it's all over, you know, taking stock of, you know, who are we as a as a people now that we've lost this, you know, who are, who are they, who are, who, you know, who are we, who, you know, what, what, what the fuck is going on, you know, and just the, the mess of it, not the morning of nine 11, the evening of nine 11, you know, do you think that's a fair comparison or? No, I think that's, you know, I think that's exactly the kind of thing that you can compare to this story after, after the destruction, after, the violence and after all the devastation has gone on, we have to take assessment of all of this and we have to, we have to separate ourselves from it. And that's what funeral for a friend did. It allowed people to realize that this actually happened and what comes forth from this, what do we do now? We have to move on. This thing has happened. It's tragic. It's horrible. But there's tomorrow and what happens tomorrow. And that's essentially what they're telling. You know, we get in the Justice League issue, we get we find out that, you know, uh, Booster has basically lost all his power because his suit got all messed up. Beetle essentially was in a coma. Guy Gardner had the living shit beat out of him to the point where in the storyline he couldn't even see because his eyes were so blackened that he had to have you know people point his ring and shoot. So uh, we're dealing with all this tragedy and we're having to step back and take assessment of it all. So I think it's definitely an apt comparison to relate the death of Superman story to something tragic like 9-11 or, you know, more recently, more appropriate for me in Oklahoma City, the uh, yeah. the Murrah building bombing, which happened, you know, just a couple of years after this. So it's it's one of those things where you hear about this and you see the devastation. And then for the next couple of days, you're assessing, well, what happened? What caused this? How do we deal with this? How do we deal with this strategy? What do we need to do? And funeral for a friend is where they get to approach that and where they get to look into that. So, yeah. Okay. And since we're going a little, or since I'm going a <laughs> uh, little too hot for TV here, um, there's a moment on uh, uh, in a Superman, or sorry, Adventures of Superman number 498 uh, on page 15. Paul Westfield. Uh, basically has it out with Maggie Sawyer and Dan Turpin decides he doesn't like his tone of voice and just punches him right in the gut and uh, sinks him like a stone. Right. And what seemed to push Turpin over the line is Westfield saying, and I hesitate to call a cigar smoking chick, a lady. Now, I realize that in comics, especially, well, code-approved comics, 
there are certain things you simply cannot put in there. It doesn't matter even if you're putting that in there to criticize it. It cannot be in there. That having been said, I don't think we're supposed to infer that Westfield called and I'm already uh, Maggie Sawyer. We're not supposed to think we're not supposed to assume that he actually called her a chick. I think we're supposed to call her the word that begins with D and rhymes with bike. Mm -hmm. I think that's what he actually is supposed to have said there. Do you, I mean, what do you think? I I could completely agree it, agree with you in that. And I'm, I'm ever so glad that Turpin punches that son of a bitch in the gut. Yes. Because as much as Dan may have been uncomfortable with Maggie and yo, her being a lesbian character, he was a friend and coworker to her, and he's not going to let someone demean her. And I think that's a powerful point in the book that you can have someone who disagrees with who this person is, but cares about them so much that he's not going to let someone else denigrate that person. So uh, I, I, I'm, I can see them not being able to get away with that because you can't make those kind of slurs in a comic. It would be essentially if they were to call uh, uh, Ron Troop, is that the guy who is an African-American? Yeah. The N-word. That would be – that would be something they couldn't get away with and would get them in a lot of trouble. Right. So, uh, yeah, I'm pretty certain that's what what happened or what they were trying to imply without actually putting the word in there. Right. <clears throat> yeah, uh, fair enough. I just uh, – I've always wanted to get a second opinion on that. But, you know, how do you have that conversation with somebody, you know? So, uh, you know, what do you think? Do you think he actually said the D word there or – so, anyway. Um, mm-hmm. I just wanted to ask somebody. So, cool. Yeah, the uh, really the remainder of this issue, uh, Adventures of Superman number four ninety eight. I've always, I've always uh, uh, appreciated. It. I mean, to me, I always kind of fit, felt like this is the real beginning of Funeral for a Friend. I'm not trying to take anything away from Justice League America number seventy, which, if we're intellectually honest, I think technically. Funeral for a Friend actually starts there, but I don't know why, but I always just – I look, and it, it, may, it may just be this just kind of ancient prejudice that I always had even as far back as when I was a kid where I didn't – I didn't really follow the the Justice League title because of the fact that, you know, it's Justice League. I don't really know these characters. I've only got so much – you know, imaginary budget that I can spend on comics and I can't really afford to branch out uh, and, you know, follow this other title as interesting as it looks, you know, cause it's kind of funny, you know, you and I are kind of coming at this from totally opposite places where, you know, you, you're a little bit of, slightly an, uh, an outsider to Superman and I'm slightly an outsider to this era of justice league. And <laughs> So as I as I think about it, you're actually the perfect person for me to have on on this show. So cool. Glad I was able to make it then. <laughs> and um, anyway, but yeah, I mean, I'm so I'm not trying to take anything away from this uh, when I say that. Yeah, this is this is uh, 
a le- definitely a valid and legitimate part of the story. It's just it's I've always kind of held this era of Justice League sort of at arm's length. But since we're talking about this issue, it's only fair to say that on page 16 of Justice League America, number 69, we see Power Girl wearing one of the truly awful costumes that she's ever had. Uh, She's had some terrible ones. Don't get me wrong, but mm -hmm. wow, this one. This is... Yeah, the... Power Girl in her iconic uh, original costume that sort of sprang out of uh, All-Star Comics or – well, yeah, it was All-Star Comics at the time uh, before it became All-Star Squadron is nice. The the one with the white unitard and the circular cutout to kind of show off her cleavage is also very iconic. But there are times where they muddled up with her history – uh, I know they covered it over on Secret Origins recently. You know her new revamped history, where she was the daughter of Arion, Lord of Atlantis. Ugh. Just, just muddle things. As much as I love Crisis on Infinite Earths, I do think it is one of the best comic book stories out there. Mm-hmm. It did do some things that just kind of muddled with certain characters. And I think power girl and Donna Troy as well were some of the ones that just kind of took a licking in that story. So yeah, Huntress as well. Oh, Huntress. uh, Yeah, definitely. Now that, you know, it's not Helena Wayne anymore. It's Helena Bertinelli and then all of that. So yeah. Wackiness. I just wanted to, I, I just, I, it, the reason I'm the reason I mention it is because I've always kind of wanted to like Power Girl. It's just sometimes DC has just not been very cooperative with me on that. So, yeah, um, I think I think the only people recently who have gotten it right, and I would say the people who have gotten a lot of things right, is when uh, Jimmy Palmiotti and Amanda Connor have been writing that story. Um, but in my personal opinion, if you want to have a good fun comic, uh, get Connor and Palmiotti on it and they will make it entertaining. You know, the, I, I would pretty much read anything that they put out. So mm-hmm. that run that they had prior to the new 52 with uh, Connor doing the artwork for power girl, some really good stuff, but you know, you know, to each their own. Definitely. Fair enough. Um, now we can't really, I don't know why, but there's something that just is so friggin' honest about, Goings on in Action Comics number 685, where you have this kind of standoff between uh, the SCU and uh, the Cadmus Project, armed members of the Cadmus Project, and then before too long, Supergirl and Team Luther uh, uh, get involved. And I don't know why, but it j- because I because I'm at a serious loss to think of anything like this and. You know, recent or even distant history, where you have these, com- where you have a um, what amounts to a, a private company getting into a firefight with a bona fide police force, and you know they're basically uh, having this sort of strange pissing contest over somebody's dead body, you know, et cetera. I mean, I I truly I I can't think of any kind of antecedent in this that you know, any of us can draw upon like 9-11 with Superman just dying. I'm at a loss to think of any kind of antecedent for this, but at the same time, it feels so familiar somehow, like something like this 
seems plausible. You know, this it could there there are circumstances where something like this could happen, even though I'm at a severe fucking loss to think of one. I don't know why it just feels real, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. I think this is something that they may, you know, that we've seen in sort of uh, snippets from the new Man of Steel or not Man of Steel, unfortunately, Batman versus Superman uh, promo or trailer that we may see something like this with the uh, government taking the body of Zod. Now, the whole idea of their groups fighting over this may not be prevalent prevalent in the movie but the idea of certain scientific organizations or certain i don't know if you really want to call them shady but government groups vying for the body of superman Mm -hmm. it, it 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 is a wonderful concept i mean you've got the most powerful being on the planet who is now who has now achieved room temperature we want to find out as much as we can about him. And there's going to be people both with good intentions and with ill intentions wanting to try and find out about this. So it's interesting that we get this sort of conflict between these characters here at this time. Hmm. I agree. And then from there, I mean, there's a whole lot of, there's a lot of crying. Let's just put it that way where you've got Lois, she's crying You've got Jonathan and Martha Kent. They're crying. You've got Lana Lang. She's crying. There are uh, people scattered literally all over the world. They're crying. Uh, There are people even in fucking prison, people that Superman personally put away. They're crying. And just on and on and on down the line, you know, you get a very good sense of just the enormity of this. And this kind of goes back to what we were saying before when – you know, a, a a president dies, you know, in the line of duty, he dies. I would almost want to compare this to uh, what I – basically the stories that my grandmother has told me that when uh, Franklin Roosevelt died, you know, here we were in the middle of a fucking world war, and now all of a sudden we need a new president. And, you know, all of the hysteria that was related to that you – know, or not hysteria, but I guess – some paranoia. I mean, there's a strong argument that the war was basically won by that point. And I think, you know, you can, you know, you can make that, you can definitely make that argument in hindsight. At the time, it might not have felt that way to the man on the street that, you know, shit, Roosevelt's gone. Now what are we going to do? You know? And so, you, you know, plenty of that. But the other thing is, Supergirl doing her best to be what Superman was, to to do what Superman did. And this isn't a huge aspect of Funeral for a Friend. In fact, this is almost the end uh, that we see of it. It gets touched upon a little bit here and there, but this is really it. And I kind of would have wanted to get inside of Supergirl's head a little bit more as as she tries to... And I guess the same sort of way that, you know, in the death of Superman from Superman number 149, Supergirl picks off, uh, picks up where Superman's leaving off. We get that same sort of a feel here where she she just tries, 
and you know maybe she's successful maybe she's not maybe she's secure in her own skin trying to be you know metropolis's new hero or maybe she's not i could have stood to to get a little bit more of this and i think that kind of says something about any story when you wish you could have the the thing is so crammed with you know good ideas and real characters real emotion that you want more of any uh, of any part of it you know maybe more of lex luthor kind of getting a little kind of having a little bit of a temper tantrum over the fact that he didn't get to kill superman mm-hmm. things like that i mean to me that's a mark of a good story yeah exactly and uh, like we've said throughout the show this is not indicative of the sort of 90s era of comics. This is a good story. This isn't a hype issue. And the fact that it came out in the middle of all this sort of fluff and is actually still well regarded by, I would think, the majority of comic book readers as a good tale, it you know says something about you know, the creators at the time and the vision that they had for the book at the time. You know, this isn't, you know, again, not to bash on the people from Image, but no one's going to hold up cable number one as one of the greatest stories of the 1990s. I think a lot of people would probably hold the death of Superman and funeral for a friend as one of the greatest stories of the 1990s. Yeah, I count myself among them. And from there, there's no way we can make it through all of this without talking about the funeral. And, you know, it's I, I think that the minute you publish a comic like this, you're pretty much setting yourself up for disappointment right away because there is no storyline out there. There is no comic book out there. There's pretty much nothing you can do that will do justice to... Superman's funeral. I mean, Superman's funeral, you know? What can you possibly do? What story can you possibly write that will do justice to the idea of the world saying goodbye to Superman, you know? And so, I mean, I I don't mean that to to sound critical. I mean it more that there are certain stories that it's just impossible, I guess, to completely get to get your hands around from a creative standpoint. As much as I don't as I don't consider myself to be a huge fan of Superman, the Man of Steel as a monthly title, I think Louise Simonson did about as good a job as anybody could hope to. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's the best way to put it. Yeah, it, it, you are right. How do you say a proper farewell to an icon, a literal icon, you know, this, this is, this is a character who has become modern myth. This is a character who I think in, you know, in a hundred years, 200 years, 500 years will be looked on and stories will be told of him in the, in the same way that we look on the stories of Hercules, the stories of Oedipus or the stories of Greek myth. Mm -hmm. You know, Superman is that iconic of a character that writing a story where you have people eulogizing him has got to be really difficult to do. And 
to do it effectively. And yeah, uh, it's it's done as well as it possibly could have been. I agree. And that's not to say that everything is perfect. I mean, as much as I like uh, John Bogdanov's art, you know, whenever he draws uh, Superman, they're when it, when when it when he's on his his A game, there's I'm tempted to say there's really nobody better except that you know he's a contemporary of as you've said Tom Grummet and Dan Jurgens so hmm but uh, nevertheless you know for as good as he might be with Superman I'm just not all that nuts about his version of of Batman and we actually get to see a a, a fairly decent amount of his Batman on um, of course they don't oh yeah here here are the page numbers on the page uh, pages 11 and 12 or actually I guess it's just page 11 really mm. um, on page 11 we see his version of Batman and I feel like you know if he could have had a little bit more time to perfect his model or or something I don't know it's just I don't really get the idea that this this uh, the the John Bogdano Batman that we see in this story is everything quite that he could be. I don't know. Yeah, I think I think it wasn't really until I know there was an issue of you know Man of Steel during uh, Zero Hour where um, oh yes where he drew the various different Batman. And he drew them from he, he I think he, it was on the cover and he drew them from the various different eras. And oh, yeah. he actually did a really spectacular job of differentiating, differentiating them. And maybe here he just hasn't had an opportunity to draw the Batman character enough to really refine it as he would have you know, by that time. So maybe that's just the case. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Um, you know, you and I were talking. <laughs> it's kind of funny. You and I were talking a little bit, uh, a little bit of, uh, just a little while ago about, I guess the crass commercialism and the speculator shit that was going on all through, all through the early '90s and everything. And my temptation is to want to exempt the death of Superman hoopla from all of that. But on page 13, I can't help but feel that the creators of the story. We're kind of lampooning that same type of thing, you know, uh, uh, the special bagged death issue and commemorative armband and all this other stuff. And I feel, again, I mean, this is not the kind of thing that they would do in a story like this if they were trying to be self-referential. I think we're supposed to assume this is commentary on the rest of the industry, but some people do do think it's they have interpreted this as basically, yeah, it's it's uh, the creative team basically saying, you know what, yeah, we're as guilty as anybody, but hey, it's a good story, right? So I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, is this self-referential, or is or or is this Louis Simonson skew, skewering the comic book industry? Yes, I do. Kind of, I, I can kind of imagine that's a bit of crass commercialism. Now, the face of the of the guy who's selling the stuff mm-hmm. is pretty specific. I don't know if that's supposed to be someone, uh, uh, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me that Bogdanov was sort of aping a face of someone that he may not have been all that 
fond of who's uh, trying to cash in on all this. But mm-hmm. I am glad that Bibbo's there to kind of take him down real quick. But yeah, it it doesn't surprise me that, you know, this is sort of a commentary on the commercialism that we'd see from the speculators at the time. Oh, well, you know, you've got to get this poly bag to make sure that you've got it boarded as well. And cause this is going to be worth lots of money during, you know, you know, in the next couple of years, because it's, it's, it's part of an iconic image that happened at this point in time. So yeah, I, I could buy that definitely. All right. Well, yeah, just wanted to ask about that. And, um, then from there, you know, they, the actual funeral takes place. They bury Superman. A full-scale fucking riot ensues. And all of this is happening while Jonathan and Martha are at home watching watching it on TV. And this is the moment when you realize they can't go to their own son's funeral. I mean, number one, their safety is at stake. Number two, his his secret is at stake. I mean, you know... Yeah, the man is dead, but his enemies are still very much alive. And, you know, they're taking their lives in their own hands just by showing up. You know, why would these people from so far out of town be there? So on and so forth. And, you know, so we get uh, some more crying and everything. And just the hugeness of that, you know, I mean, you know, biology notwithstanding, he's their son. And, you know, the, uh, the genetics of it, that's that's trivial you know and so for them to not be able to to be there you know because on the one hand you know and i i didn't really fully connect to this until you know when i was a kid until you know family members actually started passing away and then what i realized is that you know there is something that's a, a funeral isn't fun i don't mean it like that but there is a a participatory aspect to it where you can just kind of have this release, you know, it's, you're, you're saying goodbye and it's in a meaningful and permanent kind of way. It's imperfect, but it's nevertheless the best that we can do as a human race. And for them to be denied that, I mean, my God, it's number one, it makes complete sense that, I mean, you know, they don't need to be there. It's just not a good idea. But that's more practical. Not being there from an emotional standpoint as fucking parents. I mean, my God, what would that do to somebody, you know? Yeah, the the Kents have got to have it the worst out of all these people because they're having to mourn in silence. They cannot express the fact that they are completely torn up because – their son is gone because because their son is Superman. It's it, it really is the greatest tragedy that that the Kints can't show how proud that they are and how sad that they are when Superman does things that are triumphant mm-hmm. or when things that horrible happen to him. And it's it, it, it's it, it can't be it's it's almost impossible to imagine the kind of pain that they have to go through because they're going to have to literally suffer in silence. They can't come out and make it to Superman's funeral mm-hmm. because why would these two random people 
who were the parents of Clark Kent be here. Now, of course, the disappearance of Clark is going to have to be approached for a while. And that'll be something that they'll deal with later on in the story with. But yeah, the, the, the suffering of the Kents is, is really one of the tragedies of this story. Agreed. And you know, the, uh, the thing about it is, and I don't want to, I'm not trying to, you know, uh, pick at any scabs that you might have, but you know, I think most people, if, you know, if you've lost somebody, there's always this really perfunctory thing that people say at the funeral. You know, they say, well, if there's anything I can do, let me know. And there is nothing they can do. Mm-hmm. There's nothing anybody can do, you know. But at the same time, it's on the one hand, those words are so hollow. The person saying them knows it. The person hearing them knows it. But there's still this solidarity, you know, where th- this person, they, there's nothing they can do to help you. But at least they're there with you and they're suffering, too. And I don't know why, but it's it's just part of the recovery process that, you know, the kids can't even get that, you know. And whatever whatever needs they may have in terms of mourning for their son properly at his actual funeral, they can't even get the, the that kind of shitty non-comfort comfort of somebody saying, you know, basically somebody giving them a big hug and saying, if there's anything I can do for you, you just, you just let me know. You know, it's, I don't know. It's, it's really powerful. And, yeah. Um, yeah. At the, at the end of the story, the closest thing they get to that is a phone call from Lois mm-hmm. because she's the only one who knows that, that the Kents, you know, have got to be feeling this and you're, you're right. It is cold comfort. There's, there's really nothing that Lois can say or do to assuage the the feelings of the the, the tragic feelings that the Kents are, are, are have right now, and the yeah the Kents are just going through that what has to be the most horrible time, and yeah they can't they can't say why they're feeling this way. They just have to, like I said, they just have to suffer in silence, which is tragic. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I just, these, these last couple of pages, every time I, uh, I read this story, those last couple of pages, man, it just talk about a kick in the nards, you know? Yeah. And, um, well, from there we start getting in a little bit away, moving a, somewhat away from you know the grief and the pain of everything with uh, you know funerals and all of that sort of stuff. We get into Superman number seventy six, where we get into some full blown intrigue, and now we're getting parasites coming out of the woodwork. This woman claims to be Mrs. Superman, and Lois knows damn good and well that she's not, but at the same time she can't actually come right out and say why it is that she knows she's not. And meanwhile, she's finally having her teary-eyed reunion with the Kents. Lana crashes, and I don't know why, but for some reason, again, there's just this fucking honesty to this stuff that the minute... they, I've noticed they tend to cry a little bit less now that they have each other and 
it's I don't. I, as you say, you know, there is this sort of imperfection that goes with, you know, the solidarity, this comfort that we have for one another when we're grieving. But at the same time, damned if it doesn't help, you know, I mean, it doesn't make anything go away. But it does. I don't know, just somehow knowing that everyone else is feeling the same thing you are uh, hurting the same way you are. It just helps, you know, it, it's it's the concept that. You know, a, a problem shared is a problem halved. You know, when you're when you're able to communicate with people and share this tragedy, you're able to sort of spread it out amongst each other. The pain is still there, but you actually have someone to communicate with it. And that's I think the concept that they're getting forward and having, you know, these characters work things out between each other. Agreed. And, you know, in and amidst all of this stuff happening, you know, this is it's kind of funny. This statue of Superman in Centennial Park. It's kind of funny how that remains canon. Why even now, even in a as far as I know, a continuity where Superman hasn't actually died. This is still. This is still there. This is still part of. Uh, I guess Superman's myth now of him having his own statue in in the park. I mean, it's it, it's been there now for what's it been like over 20 years now of comics. Um, how long does it take before something becomes official fucking canon, right? And but that's that's where we are. And it's strange to think that I don't think the statue is actually unveiled to the readers for the first time in this issue. I think it was actually in uh, Man of Steel number 20. But I think this is the first time we get a really – forgive me. We get a we get a good look at it, and I don't know. I mean speaking of crass, crass commercialism, I remember thinking you know, at the time that th- these comics were coming out, you know, if DC really wanted to cash in on all this death of Superman hoopla, they could make these little statuettes. You know, you've got the base there with you know the, uh, the symbol on it, and then Superman – the sta- Superman statue holding the eagle – uh, on top of that, and you know, it could have been a collectible something or other. And it, it, to this day, it surprises me that nobody thought to do this, but apparently, no one ever did. Yeah, I remember at this time they were starting to put out the uh, like the pewter statues or the pewter sculpts of things. So it wouldn't surprise me if they would, you know, would have put something out like this where they would have just put the Superman with the, his arm out and the eagle landing on it as as a kind of tie into it Mm -hmm. but yeah that does that does seem very crass because it is commercializing on yes it's a fictional character but it's the death of a fictional character which yeah does sort of smack of consumerism at its worst you too can mourn superman's death with your very own collectible statue (laughs) yes and and by the superman by the death of superman chess set (laughs) <laughs> yes. Pawns, pawns like Maggie Sawyer, Guy Gardner, Maxima. Yes. <laughs> and a special no. edition, Jimmy Olsen as Turtle Boy. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I'd actually be interested in that now. You, you, you've sold me. Good job. There you go. All right. Thank you. Come on, Franklin Mint. Get on that. <laughs> you know, we can do this for like the uh, the 30th anniversary. <laughs> and then the issue ends with... Uh, Operatives from the Cadmus Project stealing Superman's body 
And then that, of course, leads us into Superman number 499, where we see what a, a little bit of what's going on now with Cadmus's interest in in Superman. But before we can even get into that, on page three of Superman number 499, we get one of my favorite Supergirl illustrations ever. This is like top five right here. This, this sort of... Uh, landscape style portrait of Supergirl just zooming over the city and everything. And I just love it. This is, I would love to see something like this in that Supergirl sh uh, TV show, you know, and at the, actually at the time that, you know, you and I are recording this, the show will have already premiered. And so who's to say that there isn't a moment like this in the show, but Something kind of like this, of Supergirl just zipping across the city. That, to me, would just be the best thing, I think. Yeah, looking through this, um, again, it's it's Grummet and Hazelwood. So, obviously, the art is top-notch. And, yeah, I, I, I so look forward to the Supergirl show. I'm, uh, you know, every time I see snips from snippets from it or you know i go to the theater and they've got one of those amc first looks on it i'm just like they've got it right they're doing you know uh, they're doing supergirl right and they're doing i think the superman family right with that so i'm looking forward to it and yeah this is iconic and wonderful and it, you you can see on this image you know it's snowing and you see the sort of her breath coming out in the sort of vapor form. It's just spectacular. I agree. Wow. And the thing is, I mean, on the one hand, I've never really thought of Tom Grummet as, you know, the ultimate pinup uh, pin artist. To me, he's more of, you know, the, the workman artist who, um, you know, very meat and potatoes type of pencils. And it's just pure, solid storytelling. You know, he's, I don't think he necessarily set out to be the, um, you know, the super spectacular, you know, artist guy, you know, the hot wizard of pick of the month guy, you know, but at the same time, this is, I mean, when he, when he sets his mind to it, I, he's as good as anybody and dare I say better than most. Um, anyway, I mean, of all the issues that we've gotten up to now, this is arguably the most Supergirl centric in that, you know, she's definitely on the move here in this story. And I really appreciated it at the time because of the fact that I was a big Supergirl fan. And I like specifically that it was Matrix. It wasn't Kara. It was Matrix that was Supergirl. And I don't know why, but then as now, it kind of, I kind of like the idea of Superman not having so much a biological family, so much as an adopted family, not just the Kents. And not just Lois, but also he's got Lana, he's got Supergirl, and as we, and there will be other characters too before this is all over. But people who actually share his symbol, even though they don't share his ancestry, you know. Mm -hmm. And that to me is just somehow more powerful. But um, whatever. So the uh, issue uh, pretty much ends with Dan Turpin and Supergirl taking on members of Underworld. Still don't really know too much about what's going on with uh, Superman's body, other than that it's been uh, stolen by operatives from the Cadmus Project, as I say. And we're going to skip ahead a bit to – unless you, do you have anything more about Adventures of Superman number 499? I'm good with it. Okay, cool. 
All right, so let's skip ahead a bit to uh, this is Superman number seventy-seven, and before we can even get into the story itself, the the cover of this thing—it's basically Superman flying off to his reward. I mean, it, how many comic book covers can you look at that get you choked up? But dude, this is one of them, at least for me. Yeah, um, they're, they're obviously the imagery. The imagery has two meanings, of course. It's super. It says at the bottom of the end, you see Superman flying through the clouds, flying up to the sun. You get the idea, since you know Superman is quote-unquote dead, this could be imagery of him flying to his final reward. It also works as imagery of Superman becoming repowered. Mm-hmm. This is Superman flying to the sun, the source of his power. This is Superman recharging as well. So it, it, you can take it for either you could take it for either concept. And I think that's an interesting uh, art choice that I think uh, Jurgens did for this cover. Hmm. I didn't think about that, but yeah, if you want to see this as a prelude, then to something else, perhaps, then mm-hmm. yeah, you absolutely can. But this is. In a weird kind of way, you could say that Lois's participation in this storyline is – or this – I keep saying storyline. This comic, this issue, is Lois basically burying Clark again, you know? And it's a crying shame that she'd have to do it even once, much less twice. But nevertheless, that's the the situation that she finds herself and – uh, towards the end of the issue, she's actually in her mind, you know, she's still grieving as much as anybody. And so in her mind, she's kind of flashing forward now to the wedding that she thinks she's never going to have, where the minister uh, basically has Lois and Clark recite their vows and say that, say the I do part. And the the pain, the loss, the confusion, the shock, that stuff has diminished somewhat, but it's still there for, it's still very fresh for, and it's, I, I, I'm tempted to think that in the hands of a lesser writer, you wouldn't have gotten a moment like this where you might've had a, you know, a pages long scene where Lois cries about how she's never going to get married but leave it to Dan Jurgens to give you that same exact flavor in just two panels. Mm-hmm. Well, and Dan Jurgens, that's all I think we really need to say. <laughs> yeah. Now, that having been said, as much as I like Dan Jurgens, I think he's a great writer, he's a great artist. I don't think he really unlocked who Lex Luthor is just yet. Uh, by the time. You know, he wrote this he wrote this issue. And the reason for that is he has Lex Luthor personally uh, kill somebody in this story, basically just because he can, because he can get away with it. And there's nothing Superman can do about it. There's nothing he can do to stop him. Certainly there's nothing he can do to arrest him. It's over. And I don't I've just never viewed Lex Luthor even the post-crisis Lex Luthor, I've just never viewed him in quite those terms. Lex, I don't think would... It's not that he minds having blood on his hands. I don't think he does. It's more that he 
he has people that he pays for this sort of thing. It's, I think he would, I think his view of it would be that it's beneath him to do something like this himself. And I certainly don't think he would do it just because, you know, uh, you know, just to prove a point or anything like that. I think he would, if he was going to have somebody killed, there would have to be a specific purpose that's, that's being served. It's not just to say, well, fuck you, Superman. It's, there's got to be something more to it than that. And I understand that this is a very, you know, chilling moment and it's supposed to tell us all kinds of crazy shit about Lex. It's just that I don't really, I just don't buy it, you know? Yeah. Even though this is the sort of rejuvenated, youthful Lex, the the weird cloned body with Lex's mind inside of it, mm-hmm. and that he could get away with killing someone with his bare hands or killing someone himself. I fully agree with you. The, the persona of Lex, that would be something that's beneath him. That would be something left to underlings to do. Mm-hmm. Plus he's also, I think he's also smart enough where he wouldn't want to get physically his hands dirty by all of this. The, you're, you're absolutely right. This is just Lex being kind of evil for essentially not a good reason. He can be evil without having to get himself muddied up by all of this. So it it does feel a bit out of character for the for for Lex here. Agreed. And you know, to flash forward just a little bit, there there does come a time when Dan Jurgens has Lex personally take life again later. Um, he arranges for Mayor Berkowitz to be assassinated. And then Lex personally blows the assassin's head off himself, you know, uh, with a gun that he just happened to have on him, just shoots him. And I buy Lex uh, killing somebody himself in that story because everything he did in that story, it was partly... I mean, that was Lex basically settling all family business that day. And so he dealt with the Contessa Alexandra del Portenza. He dealt with Mayor Berkowitz. And then he also dealt with this prick foster uh, parent that he's in whose house he stayed when he was a kid. And, you know, there's some story shit that was going on there, but it was absolutely personal between Lex and this guy. And so Lex had a compelling reason to shoot this guy himself, you know, and it may seem hypocritical, but like on the one hand, he didn't have a specific reason to, to murder Sasha in this story. He just felt like doing it. And I'm sorry, that's not good enough, you know, not for Lex. And I think that that other story is Superman. It's like 130, 131, something like that. He kills, he personally kills somebody in that story. But the difference is it was. Number one, it's covering his tracks from another murder that he'd ordered. But number two, it's also taking care of a childhood grudge that he'd had. He'd been nursing it all of these years. And so it it accomplishes a couple of different things for him. And so, you know, I, I'm try- basically I'm trying to explain this so that I don't look like a hypocrite for not liking this moment, but loving the shit out of that one. It's all about context, you know, so. Exactly. Yeah, you, you, you put it in context. Lex randomly killing someone because he can, that's out of character. 
Lex killing someone because he tormented him and had uh, a grudge against him, that works for the character of Lex. You know, the fact that he has a reason behind killing this person is much more effective with the character rather than him just randomly doing it because he can. Agreed. Now, one of the things that we've kind of glossed over, in fact, I would say kind of ignored in all of this, is goings on with Jonathan Kent. And basically, in the issues that we've skipped, you know, we've had uh, Jonathan, he's having these sort of flashbacks to Clark's childhood. And ultimately, at the end of Man of Steel number 21, he, he uh, collapses from a heart attack. And here in Superman number 77, he's in the hospital and he's somewhat flashing back on his own life. But specifically, he's flashing back on on Superman. And so he's in the hospital and the issue ends with him seeing uh, not Clark, you understand, but Superman. He sees uh, Superman there in uh, the operating room. As his heart stops beating and it looks like Jonathan dies and he goes hand in hand with Superman into the afterlife. Or is this all in Jonathan's head? Uh, who's to know? I mean, you can read that, you know, either way. So if, you know, any of you listening, if you don't believe in any kind of an afterlife, well, fine. Then you can imagine this is all just a figment of Jonathan's imagination. So. Yeah, but the story the story works either way. This can either be his his last dying brain function or this could be him going into the afterlife you know you whatever your conception of what happens to us when we die you could take whatever belief you have and put it in and take it from this comic indeed and it's a uh, again this is just really a really powerful moment and it does kind of speak to the fact that, like, I don't know if I want to say it, phrase it, that Jonathan took Clark's death harder than Martha, simply because he's the one that had the heart attack. But certainly, you know, there is a, there is a pain here that obviously he just wasn't able to overcome. And again, I mean, this is just, this is a very easy thing for me to believe in that, you know, I look, I've never had children, so I certainly don't really, I can't speak from firsthand experience what it's like to lose one. But I'd imagine that, you know, you, you carry that with you, you know, again, biology, notwithstanding, he, he's Clark's father. And, you know, all of this has happened is from Jonathan's standpoint, the worst possible way that it could have. And, it's not a stretch for me to think that, you know, it, the strain would be too much for him to bear, you know, that he or Martha wouldn't one of them or the other wouldn't be able to get past this. So I find it I find this easy to believe in. But the other thing is. We'd assumed, you know, all through the burn age that Jonathan and Martha were basically here to stay. And this was the first inkling we get that. You know, they're as mortal as anybody else in this story, and it may well be that the way this Superman story uh, plays out is that Jonathan, instead of dying before Clark becomes Superman or 
or whatever else, he instead dies after he's become Superman and after he's presumed dead. But that's no less a valid, no less valid a way to tell the story. And I don't know. I mean, it's this this moment has just it's come to mean a lot to me over the years. But like for different reasons, it's like it changes. It's it's changed and it's grown over the years. And I don't know. I just I've always really liked this this aspect of the story. I mean, I honestly cannot think of a better way for this story to end than for Jonathan Kent to to have a heart attack and then die on the operating table. Mm. Well, it's to 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 look at the reality of you know a parent losing a child. It's especially a parent of this age and a parent, you know, the it, it's it's an easy concept to understand. The loss of a child for a person who's a bit elderly could bring on not only this this rush of emotion, this this feeling of tragedy, but it can also bring on physical side effects. And he's not only having to deal with the fact that he's emotionally wrought because of the death of his child, but it's taking a physical toll on him as well. And we see the physical toll being played out in his heart attack. And by the end of this story, supposedly his death as well. So again, it's, it shows why this is a great story rather than just a great speculator piece of comicdom. Agreed. And as you were saying, you know, the um, you can you can interpret this, you know, this moment where Clark greets him and then they go into the afterlife together. You can interpret that really one of two ways, you know, you can interpret that as being, it's very literal and, you know, this is really what's going on or, you know what, Jonathan's brain is firing off all different kinds of endorphins and what he's, what he thinks he's seeing, he is in fact not actually seeing. And this is all just, it's all in his imagination, but it's not, it's not really real. You don't really get that option though with Adventures of Superman number 500 where I think you could – I'm not sure if this would fit quite as the first part of Reign of the Superman. I think you could more easily call this the true finale for Funeral for a Friend. But basically uh, you've got – you've got Jonathan in the afterlife. He's trying to basically – rescue Clark from his own decision to die willingly. You know, Jonathan's theory on this is that Superman has believed himself to be mortal. And so he's assumed that he's obligated to, to die and never come back. And you know what? It doesn't necessarily have to be that way because something, something Kryptonian. Yeah, it kind of feels that they're trying to write their way out of this. You know, it, it's it's set up for Superman coming back, mm-hmm. which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But it, I think it's done in such a sort of vague way that it doesn't necessarily diminish the fact that Superman died trying to save Metropolis and all these people here. So it's, yeah. 
it is it is what it is very true and that's that's more or less what ends up happening jonathan escorts clark i guess back into this world and the issue doesn't exactly end with um the status quo things going back to the way that they were but it it is nevertheless a, a pretty fun story and again to me it's shitloads upon shitloads of Tom Grummet art. So, you know, I don't know if this is necessarily the strongest uh, Superman story in his entire publishing history, but it's, it, it's good. It's a worthy conclusion to a uh, funeral for a friend. And like I say, I mean, you know, the thing is just festooned with uh, some amazing uh, uh, Tom Grummet artwork here. So it, I almost feel like I should just say to anyone who doesn't enjoy this story, and they are out there, but to anyone who doesn't enjoy this story, shut up, you know? Yeah, that's what I'd say to anyone who doesn't enjoy anything with Tom Grummetard in it. Um, I have not seen any work from Tom Grummet where I haven't been at least pleased and at most just awestruck. Agreed. Well, and you know, since we're having a little bit of a grummet love fest here, um, I tried. Sean, you've got to believe me. I tried. I tried, 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 tried my very hardest to become a Spider-Man fan when I was about uh, 13, maybe 14, around there. Tried like hell, but it was as if Marvel didn't want my business, I guess. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um it was basically balls deep in the clone saga right around then. And let's face it, that really is not the best time to uh, try getting into Spider-Man, right? Yes. Uh, I heard there was a lot of trouble with the uh, stories at that time. <laughs> and I, you know what? I, I think a lot of them are actually quite true, but there was one storyline that, it's actually wasn't even a storyline. It was just sort of a backup that I, to this day, I still really enjoy. It was a backup feature, and I believe Amazing Spider-Man number 400, written by I truly do not know, but drawn by Tom Grummet. Hmm. And it's basically the, um, the morning after Spider-Man uh, has found and apprehended the burglar, right? The burglar. And it's basically him trying to connect with Aunt May. And keep in mind, I mean, since we're talking about, you know, all of this grieving and mourning and all this stuff that's going on, Aunt May kind of lashes out at him, talks shit a little bit about Spider-Man, because she's just in so much pain of her own, you know? And she doesn't necessarily appreciate the fact that the guy that killed her husband has just been arrested by Spider-Man. She didn't give a shit, you know, that doesn't change anything for her. And, you know, I guess the, the pain of it, look, I don't, I I don't regard Tom Grummet as being, you know, necessarily the go-to guy for all of the crying and, you know, the heavy emotion and all that sort of stuff, but he does it very well. But all throughout that story, you know, that action bit where Spider-Man actually does, beat the shit out of the uh out of uncle ben's killer and then you know the aftermath of all that it's only a few pages long but it's still 
a phenomenal story. And I put that up there as as it's as worthy as anything else of canonization and Spider-Man mythos. And to my knowledge, there's not a whole lot of Tom Grummet stuff. I don't think from Marvel in general, but Spider-Man in particular, but you know, he's, you get, it's only whenever I saw his uh, backup story in amazing Spider-Man number 400, I realized how comparable he and Mark Bagley really are to one another. Hmm. As far as, you know, line style is concerned. I mean, they go different directions with it, but they, I, I do think they really are peers with one another in a lot of ways. So I don't know if you've ever read that issue, but if you haven't, I do recommend. No, I, I may have to go pick that up then. That sounds cool. Yeah, it's, it's worth checking out, I think. Hmm. And um, obviously the, uh, the big marquee aspect of this, of, uh, of this issue is uh, obviously Superman, for lack of a better word, coming back to life. And I'm not sure how literally true that is in terms of, you know, like how dead was he to begin with? Not even the point. The point is that, number one, Superman comes back to life. But more importantly, Metropolis ha- now has four people who, to varying degrees are wearing Superman symbols on their chest and are, in some cases, calling themselves or being called by others, Superman. We basically have four Supermen in this city. Now, when Reign of the Supermen was announced that, yeah, this is what's coming, you know, this is where, you know, the storyline's going to go. Like, like, where were you on that? You know, what were your thoughts? You know, I, I picked up the issue and I was I was very intrigued. It's one of those things where you've got these four different characters. Now, I would put to the to the fact that the steel character, the John Henry Irons, he is just a man. He he's he's kind of a, analogous to Iron Man from the Marvel universe. He's a person who was motivated by the ideals of Superman to take up the mantle but he's never thought he's never claimed in any way that he is Superman come back with the other three characters. You've got kind of a, a more of a physical connection to them mm-hmm. with the eradicator. You know, he's Kryptonian, the cyborg Superman. He's got some sort of DNA that is related to Superman. The Superboy seems to be like a clone of him. So there's that mystery that they put out, you know, which one of these is going to take on the mantle of Superman. And again, it's progressing the story along. It's not just stopping with the death of Superman and saying, this is it. The story continues on. It's the never ending. It's the never ending battle. That's that's continuing the books. So I, I was, I was down with it. I liked it. I, I, I don't know if I ever took sides with one character. I think probably if I did, I was more akin to the Eradicator, mm-hmm. but his motivations seemed far more, far more along the lines of Batman. He was a bit more aggressive. He didn't worry about collateral damage and taking drastic measures to deal with uh, villains or villainy. Mm-hmm. So, but uh, it, it it was great because it gave you it, it gave readers 
the opportunity to sort of pick and choose who was going to be the next Superman. Agreed. And, you know, it's kind of funny. That's the um, pretty much the same direction that I was coming from. Uh, I was extremely invested in this in, in this story. And I kind of like the idea of there being four superheroes in Metropolis that to varying degrees, you know, I don't know as I'd want to call them all Superman, but they were all, you can't deny the Superman influence. I mean, they're wearing it on their fucking chest, but I really liked that story. And I'll just go through these like sequentially. The, um, the, uh, John Henry Irons character, keep in mind, I've never really been like a Marvel guy to begin with, but I certainly was not a Marvel guy back then. Never really read all that many Marvel comics. And so I, I guess I knew of Iron Man, but I didn't really know much about Iron Man. But even then, I kind of my way of processing John Henry Irons was that this is sort of the DC Universe version of Iron Man, you know, and that he's a character who wants to who wants to do right, but unlike Iron Man, he doesn't have a a uh, mistake that he's trying to make up for. And he doesn't have a flaw that he's struggling against every day. I mean, there is a sense in which, yeah, he does kind of have a mistake in his background that he's trying to put back. But I've always kind of thought that, you know, he was perfectly content to live in obscurity so long as uh, his Toastmaster weapons were thought to, you know, to be lost. You know, he only took radical action uh, when he found out that, no, they're still out there and he's got to find them all and destroy them all. Not quite the same thing that I don't, that, that I think was motivating Tony Stark. It's they're similar, but different enough for me to say that they're, they're not the same really at all. And it, it just feels very DC universe, Iron Man to me. And that's the way I've always thought of the character. And I can't help but think that on the one hand, maybe that was intentional, but maybe that's also kind of hurt him that people have never really given John a chance on his own, you know, on his own merits. They always have to bring up, or at least on some level, consider the Iron Man factor. So Mm -hmm. as to the Eradicator, and that's who this character is, if I was reading this story today, I would know for sure that this character is not Superman based on the fact that he takes life. And there's no way that DC was going to leave blood on Superman's hands. And so, like, from the get-go, I probably should have known that this character isn't Superman. But at the time, I felt like he had... He had the most persuasive argument. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Well, uh... uh... Uh, saying that he's Kryptonian, you know, he's obviously the 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 concept that Superman was the last Kryptonian, and this person is Kryptonian. You you kind of get the idea that that's the correlation between the two, and that's why this version of Superman is the closest that we'll get to a resurrected Superman, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fair enough. Well, the uh, I just felt like this was the the most persuasive of the bunch, but from there, we get honestly. I look, 
Carl Kiesel and Tom Grummet, they created a few characters. You know, uh, not major ones, I don't think, but they created, I think, like Ron Troop, I believe, was a Carl Kiesel, Tom Grummet creation. Um, they've created a, a few characters, and they've also worked on a shit ton of uh, Superman characters together. You know, Superman himself, his supporting cast, and then you get extended uh, cast stuff like um, a Cadmus Project and whatnot. They, they had or I should say they would uh, they would have quite a lot of opportunities to work together and I think work very well together. That having been said, though, I happen to think that Superboy is the most Carl Kiesel, Tom Grummet character that either of them would ever work on. You know, this kind of smart mouth, somewhat immature, just fun-loving, super-powered teenager. You know, this is, it's just a very Tom Grummet character, in my opinion. It's a very, it's a very Carl Kiesel type of character to me. I, literally from the moment this guy first showed his face, I wanted him to stick around, if not as, as a member of the Superman family, along the lines of Supergirl. I wanted him to get his own comic. You know, if he, you know, if he, if he had to, you know, you know, I, I I wanted him to stick around, but I, I, w- I was just kind of torn on, well, do I want him to stay in the Superman titles or do I want him to get his own title or or what? I mean, how would that work? And ultimately, I kind of wonder that maybe he might have been better off staying as sort of a supporting character in the Superman books. But I don't know. Hindsight, I guess. What were your thoughts about uh, Superboy? Yeah, I. Superboy was kind of a character that sort of personifies the 90s, you know, the the haircut, the glasses, the leather jacket. He almost has the costume that is very pouch heavy that you get with a lot of the image type characters. But he he doesn't move to the excess that characters like Cable or, you know, those sort of image characters would go. He's, he's the right personification of the nineties, um, without going overboard. Mm -hmm. Um, I like the fun loving aspect of him. I like him having sort of different power set than Superman. Yes. You know, uh, the fact that he doesn't have the heat vision, the fact that his stuff is more telekinetically based. I, I really, I really enjoyed that. They made, this Superboy character different enough from Superman that it wasn't just a like they were basically compensating for the fact that they didn't have a Superboy in the post-crisis world. So they essentially put Superboy there and he's just basically Superman when he was a boy. Mm-hmm. You know, he's different enough from the Silver Age Superboy that you could see them as two distinct characters. And I, I enjoyed that of him. I would kind of have to agree with you. I don't dislike what I've read of the Superboy book where he moved out to Hawaii and had uh, dealings with a double X and those type of characters. I thought that was entertaining from what I've read. Mm-hmm. But having him probably as sort of a backup or or at least a character in dealing in the Superman comics, I think may have suited him better. But 
And it would have uh, it would have uh, eliminated the Superboy and the Reavers, which I've heard, or, <laughs> which I heard was um, not some of the best comics. Yeah, every do what you heard about that. It's it, it, everything you heard. It's all true. Okay. All right. So there we go then. <laughs> yeah. Um. No. I, I. I very much agree with all of that. I. The thing about Superboy that. I think that we're. People are just not willing to say for some reason. Of all people, I, I I probably don't need to tell you how awesome Kyle Rayner is. Now, my personal opinion, and if you disagree with this, that's fine. But it's just my personal opinion about Kyle Rayner is that he's a great character. I love reading his stuff. Almost no matter who's writing it. I mean, I think you and I know of one particular exception to this but by and large i think kyle rayner is a pretty easy character to get right when you try you know i don't think that's necessarily the case with superboy i think superboy really suffered when uh carl kiesel was not the writer anymore i don't think subsequent writers really understood him and i really don't think jeff johns understood him and I really, I mean, I know that this iteration of the character we're looking at right here is, you know, very 90s and with everything that implies, you know, there are positive aspects to that, but there are maybe some not so positive aspects. Mm -hmm. You know, I speak of the haircut, but bottom line, you know, this is a very 90s character, but it's also to me a very Carl Kiesel character. And the minute other writers started writing it, what you realize is that, you know what, it's not just him this it was almost like they were trying to write superman like kal-el as a boy and that's just not who this character ever was and i don't know why that's so difficult for other writers to understand but find me one who did you know invariably they would have very superman-like dialogue coming out of his mouth at various times I forget the guy's name, but whoever it was that replaced Kiesel on the monthly Superboy title clearly did not understand what this character is all about. Yeah, I think I, I, that again comes to the idea of I think maybe that writer was trying to ape the sort of Silver Age idea of Superboy mm-hmm. and make it as Superman when he was a boy. This Superboy is nothing like that. This Superboy is very much of his time. He's very flirtatious he's very at times kind of Mm self-centered but he does have those aspects of heroism behind him he's not an analog for he's not a younger analog for superman but he does have the aspects that make him a good hero in the mold of superman he's not a shrunken mirror image of the character of superman indeed Then from there, we get the cyborg Superman's little preview here, uh, his little moment. And it's honestly, it's fascinating to think that so much of this little, I can't even call it a story, but this little snippet that we get here, something like almost three quarters of it is completely silent. There's no dialogue. There's no nothing. It's basically the cyborg Superman swooping down, melting the plaque 
the commemorative plaque over which Superman died or is thought to have died. And it's only then that, you know, dialogue starts picking up in the story. And to me, this is just pure classic Dan Jurgens that he's capable enough uh, to tell this kind of a story. You know, he can tell a story visually. And honestly, I, I don't think he even needs the, uh, the dialogue that is here. I don't think he even needs that. Uh, you know, it's nice that it's nice that it's there. Don't get me wrong, but I don't feel like it absolutely needs to be there. And this is just pure good old fashioned storytelling. And, you know, I gotta tell you the, uh, the thing is, it never really crossed my mind that the cyborg Superman was going to be the real guy. I had no idea who he really was, don't get me wrong, but it never crossed my mind that this was truly Superman. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I came from as well. It There was a mystery behind who he was. But of all of the characters, you know, excluding Steel, who never really claimed to be the second coming of Superman, this one kind of felt like there was something hinky going on with him, mm-hmm. that there was some deceit within him. And, you know, as we see in the progression of the story, we find out exactly what the cyborg Superman was. So, yeah. And you know what? That actually leads into one of my it leads into one of I, I I don't know if I want to call it a gripe necessarily, but it does lead into a problem I've got with Reign of the Superman as a story where um, in Superman number 78, we see uh, a little bit of the cyborg Superman's internal monologue. And every time he's looking at Doomsday's body, he says to himself, you know, they never even bothered to wash my blood off of you. And so he's, I mean, he's thinking very much in, in the first person here. And, you know, that's his blood that's on there. And then, you know, from there, he has this little moment with Lois where he actually says the name Kent. And he talks about a farm where he grew up and all these other things. And basically, he knows, what I'm saying is he knows things that the cyborg Superman manifestly does not know later on in the story, right? He doesn't know that Superman is Clark Kent. He doesn't, uh, or, and he shouldn't think of, you know, Doomsday as being covered in his own blood. He, he's, he was covered in Superman's blood. And it's, it was, I just feel like somebody was trying a little too hard to make us believe that this guy was a possible candidate. And I just feel like this was incredibly fucking dishonest. Yeah. And you've got to kind of know, knowing what we do know about the cyborg Superman, Mm -hmm. could he have known that he was Clark Kent? Did he know? Could he have known about, you know, his parents in Smallville? Is, is this just a lapse in storytelling at the time? I, I, I'm not certain. Could it be them trying to in some way trick the readers to kind of make believe that this is the, the real Superman? I'm not certain. Right. But I just, 
I guess my way of looking at it is that, you know, if you're going to have, you know, stories where you're presenting these different characters as as possibly Superman come back from the dead, then, you know, there's an honest way of there's an honest, I guess there's an honest way of 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 doing that. And in Superman number uh, Superman number 79. Dan Jurgens cleverly sidesteps it because it's all told from somebody else's point of view and we never get this character's inner monologue and he never really has a chance to lie and tell fibs and all this stuff. But it's just here in Superman number 78, it just feels kind of like a mess. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm just making too big a deal out of it, but that that's just my my reference point on it. And, on uh, you know, oddly enough, this is, uh, Cyborg Superman is kind of emblematic to me of something that it could th- – this character can only truly exist in the Burn Age. And I mean specifically with Man- Burn's Man of Steel as his origin because if you uh, – when, when DC tried to convince us that Secret Origin was the new origin for Superman, w- one of the things they tried to tell us is – All of the stories that we knew from 1986 up to that time, all of those things still happened. And they happened more or less the way that we remember them. So your back issue is not – all of your back issues haven't been invalidated. You know, They're not made obsolete here. The dark side to that though is the – and I know this is, this is going to get a little inside baseball, but just you know, hear me out um, – there's no way that the cyborg Superman could exist in a secret origin type of setting because Hank Henshaw's energy consciousness – I've never said those exact words before, but here we are, comics, man uh, – stole not Superman's ship. I mean people call it uh, – the thing that Byrne created, they call it Superman's ship just kind of for shorthand. But it's not really his ship. It, it it was his birthing matrix that had been affixed to a hyperlight drive. And from that, he had Superman's genetic code, and he had access to Kryptonian metals. That's how he fashioned this phony baloney cyborg Superman body, right? Mm. That is not available to him in Secret Origin. You know, he wouldn't have access to Superman's genetic code. And I'm... You know, maybe he could, you know, fasten uh, or fashion, I, sh- I should say, a uh, body made of Kryptonian metal from that. But one of the crucial points of evidence for the cyborg Superman is that he shares Superman's genetic structure. And that just would not be possible, you know. And so and I think in one episode I did, I actually went to like absurd extremes you know, breaking down the ramifications that has on continuity, right down to saying, and that means that Hal Jordan should still be the Green Lantern and Kyle Rayner should still be some nobody artist that uh, nobody's ever heard of before and he's going to die in obscurity. <laughs> because it is kind of, continuity is a house of cards and the minute you knock one of them over, you know, the whole thing can come tumbling down if you think about it from a logical point of view. So, True. anyway, at the time that Reign of the Superman uh, was getting started. 
I actually got sent off to a summer camp. And this was the summer of 1993. Now, I've heard a bunch of, you know, people, and some of them, by the way, are podcasters, who talk shit about, you know, the concept of going to a summer camp and how miserable it all is and it just sucked and all this stuff. And maybe maybe the summer camp I went to was just different. I don't know. But it was it was a shit ton of fun. I mean, I got to ride around on horses all day. You know, we we went scuba diving. I fired shotguns. I fired rifles. I fired handguns. Like basically any type of gun that private citizens are allowed to own. I got to shoot when I was at this camp and, you know, kissed girls and all this stuff. I mean, it was just, it was fucking awesome. Right. And then I came home and had all these Superman comics that were waiting for me. There was this kick-ass storyline that was going on and, you know, who's the real Superman, you know, what's the real story here and all this stuff. And it's just like to this day, I mean, I just, I really, I, I just look back at, at reign of the Superman in this general era this is just a really inspired time, you know, for the Superman creative team. And I think there's a really strong argument that they never completely recovered from this. You know, they they told a story that was so fucking big that, you know what, there's a strong argument that they, after Reign of the Superman ended, maybe they all should have gone their separate ways and let other people take over the Superman titles because I don't know that, the aftermath of Reign of the Superman, and I mean getting into like 1996, 1997, and through there, it's just not of the same quality, if you ask me. Mm-hmm. I'm, I, I'm, like, where are you on that? It's, it, I, I fully agree with you. The, the Superman titles, this, and I don't mean to parallel this to something as as sort of epic as the new Testament, mm-hmm. but you've, you've got the oh, death. I this already. Yeah. Well, I'm going to be, I'm going to be iconoclastic here. You've got the death and return of an iconic person. How do you top that? How, how, how do you, how do you surpass a story that has the death and return of the most iconic character in Comicton? I mean, a lot of people say that you can't top the uh, death and return of, you know, of Jesus in the New Testament, the Bible. How do you top the death and return of Superman in Comicton? And you can continue on and write interesting stories, but I don't think you're ever going to be able to get a story that is as iconic or as well-written or as enjoyable as what we've had here in in this story. Well, and I think I think the proof in the is kind of in the pudding on that that I happen to think that the remainder of 1993 all or most of 1994 all or most of 1995 is rock solid stuff, but you know, these people who create these comics are just people and they've only got as a writer, you've only really got so many tricks in your bag. And so that's why character dynamics are so important, because when you think about it, there are not very many plots in the world. So what makes up any kind of plot work, any kind of story that you can tell work, is how the characters react to the events that are occurring around them. 
And I think there's a very good argument that these people put so fucking much of their own personal creativity into this story that by the time it was all over, they literally said everything they possibly had to say about Superman. And there was just nothing left. I agree. And this is (laughs) not to mention the fact that Probably around the time of 1999, well, not, not so much 1999, but I would say about starting around 2002, 2003, when the, the Superman titles just sucked. I remember looking back at, you know, Doomsday and thinking, you know what? Maybe Superman really did die at the end of Doomsday and he never really came back. And. Maybe that's where my personal, like my headcanon for for the post-crisis Superman, maybe that's where his story needs to end. Because these stories that are going on right now suck out loud, sir. So Maybe that's, you know, sometimes headcanon can be a more enjoyable thing than the actual comics that are being produced. And, you know, I, I don't deny, you know, from what I've heard that the books that were coming out in that era were just, you know, I've heard, you know, Michael Bailey rail against the Brian Azzarello run. I'm thinking that's uh, what he's talking about where it's, where it's Superman talking to a priest. Yeah. He spends like three or four issues. Yeah. But you know, and, and honestly, if that was the, if that was the worst it ever got, I mean, we can look, you can bounce back from three or four bad issues, but we're talking about like there were entire runs that lasted years at a stretch where the writing on Superman just sucked and the art, it was horrible. And where the fuck is any of the stuff coming from? Where is it going? Who the hell cares? You know? And I don't know. It's just one question though. And I, I hope you don't feel ambushed by this, but you know, one question I've always had that I kind of wanted to spring on you. Go ahead. Without, without warning. Towards the end of the reign of the Superman story, as part of the reign of the Superman story, the cyborg Superman explodes Coast City real good. Now, this is a an event that has obvious ramifications on Green Lantern, but it was done as part of the machinations of a villain in a Superman title. It was done in a Superman title. And it's honestly, I mean, I would I would say that the event itself is completely, totally divorced from Green Lantern. And it was really a couple of months before it really started to affect Hal Jordan. So I guess what I'm saying is something that big happening to a, a character like this, you would you would expect it to involve them more, but it doesn't. It doesn't happen in their comic, and it takes the comic forever, in a sense, to really react to that. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, as a Green Lantern fan, you know, where are you coming from with that, where something that is this big a deal to the title character is almost like a side tangent thing in a completely separate comic. I I guess for me, because I know what was supposed to go on, 
with the story of Emerald Twilight that Gerard Jones had pinned out. At the end of the day, when Hal Jordan fought Mongol and Superman fought uh, the cyborg Superman in, I think, issue 46 of Green Lantern, Mm -hmm. it felt at the end of that that despite the fact that Coast City was gone and Hal had lost all these things, there was no real grudge. There was no real Hal was depressed, but he realized that this is just a fact of what happens when you're being a superhero. It wasn't until editorial or the creative team or whoever decided to shake things up with Gerard Jones's story of Emerald Twilight being how leaving the core and um, you know the the story you know it's been chronicled on just one of the guys Thomas DJ and I talked about that to it moving to Hal going bat guano insane and trying to recreate ghost city because yeah, okay, it, well, sorry to interrupt but i mean like just for the for the benefit of uh, my listeners i mean could you i mean is there more to the gerard jones version of emerald twilight than that or yeah essentially like, what was the deal there what was going on is i believe hal jordan was wanting to leave the core it, it, it didn't have anything to do with his anger over the destruction of coast city I think what it was was there was an offshoot of the Guardians who tried to usurp the Guardians, and it caused a schism between the Green Lantern Corps and the Guardians, and it effectively made Hal sort of side on one aspect of the Guardians, and eventually it got resolved, and Hal left the Corps, essentially, and went off and did his own thing and allowed the Green Lantern Corps to carry on with a new character. You know, Howe was still around, but he didn't have this turn into villainy that we saw happen in the Emerald Twilight that was uh, written. Right. And essentially, at the end of Gerard Jones' run of the story, Howe was completely fine. He was... Obviously, he was devastated by the destruction of Coast City, but he wasn't devastated by it to the aspect that he would try and usurp all of the power of the Guardians to try and recreate all of time and history. Mm. So the, 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 the initial concept that Jones put out for Emerald Twilight was definitely different from what we actually saw happen in the book. And I think that's why a lot of people – were frustrated not only with what happened to Hal, but then can, you know, tangentially frustrated with Kyle Rayner coming in and sort of taking over for Hal Jordan, which obviously I'm not frustrated from because I enjoy Kyle <laughs> Rayner as a character. <laughs> right. But yeah, essentially the Emerald Twilight story was going to work out completely different from how it f- unfolded in the comics. There was going to be, like I said, there was going to be a schism between the the Guardians. How was going to come in and take sides? Things were going to work out from that, and how was going to leave being Green Lantern or go off on his own. So that's kind of, from my recollection, the actual plot line. And there were actually in uh, previews. There was actually – this was laid out, 
And unfortunately, they went the idea of how going insane and taking out the core and taking out the guardians. So, hmm. yeah, strange to think, you know, I mean, you could have still had Kyle Rayner in that type of setting. It's just, it, it wouldn't come at the detriment of Hal's character, but what and, I've, and, hmm? and that's, and that's one of the things that, uh, you know, when we were talking about it, that it could have happened, you know, how leaving the green lantern Corps could have allowed Kyle Rayner to still come in and yet have Hal be sort of a mentor to him, you know, Cal be the sort of, you know, Obi-Wan to his Luke, you know, training him to become this great green lantern. And it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have sullied the character of Hal Jordan the way that the Emerald Twilight story kind of did. Yeah. Well, I mean, I. All right. Like, just keep in mind, I mean, I'm I, I consider myself to be a, a Kyle Rayner fan, but I'm not like uber Green Lantern fan, if that makes sense. Like the yeah. franchise of Green Lantern. But one of the things that worked for me about Kyle Rayner uh, coming on as not just a Green Lantern, but the Green Lantern is the fact that he's, number one, his ring operates on different principles than do the others. And number two, that's because of the fact that the core, as we already knew it, was either all dead or mostly dead. And he had to figure out, I mean, it, it's a big enough thing that he has to figure out how to be a superhero all on his own. Now he has to figure out how to be specifically Green Lantern all on his own. And I realize that, you know, that probably torques no shortage, uh, no, no few number of how Jordan fans off, but you know, I, it's just under the circumstances. I mean, I think it actually worked really well for Kyle, even if it wasn't altogether beneficial to Hal. And I mean, you and I, it's kind of funny, you know, you, you and I had that episode about, um, Green Lantern rebirth, which I now realize maybe that's kind of an interesting sort of a uh, way ahead of schedule, maybe postscript to just one of the guys, but mm-hmm. in a weird kind of way, you know, what we agreed on was that the way that I guess Hal was redeemed was a little bit of a cop out considering, you know, how, how much was done to vilify him in the first place. But I mean, I guess as far as execution is concerned, I, I, I just I, I consider myself to be very protective of Kyle, and so I've always been a little bit reticent to want to second guess anything that makes that that could have any kind of an impact on Kyle, precisely because of the fact that you know things turned out against all odds. Things turned out so amazingly well with him that if you had changed even just a few minor, seemingly minor things, maybe maybe it would have been a really big mess and maybe Kyle wouldn't be as awesome as he is, or he wouldn't have lasted even as long as he did, you know? And I don't know. I mean, it's like, I, I, I'm trying to find a way of saying that, you know, I don't think you're wrong. I just really do appreciate the story that, that we ultimately got. I think it, it's incredibly powerful. And I just, even now I still really enjoy it, but I always kind of figured that, you know, as somebody who's a green lantern fan, you know, they're, like the, I guess the seeds of that, of that character's destruction were sown in a completely different book. 
that would really piss me off. You know, if I was a fan of that character, I would not be okay with that. So I've always kind of wanted to ask uh, somebody who is a fan. I've always wanted to ask them that. Yeah, it's I never because I so enjoyed the character of Kyle. I never got as irate as many people did about what happened to Hal. Mm-hmm. I was never happy with it, but I saw it as an element of storytelling. And because I think Kyle Rayner stepped up and took over the mantle of Green Lantern and did so well in without the without the fact that he was supposed to be chosen as the most fearless without the fact that he had, you know, experience as as being a heroic figure that he had to sort of learn his way through all of this. It made him a more relatable character than than say Guy or John or Hal who were chosen to be these iconic figures. He he's, you know, I I've, I've said before in the show he's kind of the Peter Parker of the DC universe. He's a guy who got this responsibility thrust upon him and he made the best of it. And, you know, that's what I've said on my show. Why Kyle is one of my favorite green lanterns, but that's way off of, you know, covering stuff, talking about Superman. We need to get on this. Yeah, I I agree. You know, we do probably need to get back to Superman, but I mean, it, this is something that I felt like needed. I I, I at least wanted to have a, uh, a a discussion with somebody about this, and I mean you're obviously a uh, you know a very obvious choice in all of that. The only other one I could think of would be Thomas DJ, and I don't know that he even listens to my show. So um, you know it's just it felt like that was that was really the way to go. In the main though. Um, I really enjoy, you know, this whole, really this whole, uh, trilogy. I feel like this was a, you know, a very worthwhile story to tell. And, you know, the characters that spun out of this, you know, Steel, Superboy, and to some degree or another, the Eradicator. I don't know if any of those characters were handled as well as they maybe could have been. But at the end of the day, this is still one of the most epic Superman stories that anybody's ever attempted. And speaking as somebody who followed this thing voraciously at the time that it was coming out, I just, I, I, there's a nostalgic aspect to it, but I mean, even when you move away from that, I mean, I truly do believe this is, this is a, a, a phenomenal story. It's tons of fun. And, you know, people can talk whatever smack about it they want, you know, these days, but I, I think a lot of that is if it's not Monday morning quarterbacking, it's at the very least sour grapes. And, mm-hmm. you know, I don't see how this comic is really any worse than a lot of the dreck that was coming out through, especially in the 90s. And, you know, this comic is head and shoulders above that in terms of, uh, I guess, in terms of originality. But also in terms of execution. I mean, show me another creative team that could stitch together a story like this across four monthly titles and do it in a way that the basically you don't lose the plot. You know, I mean, I've never felt like any other creative team, whether it's Batman or it's Spider-Man or whoever else, 
I never felt like they were able to integrate all of their books into into a single story as successfully as the Superman titles were. And apart from just being a good story, just from a technical standpoint, you know, of how well how well executed this story is. There's I mean, I find very little here to criticize and what little there was is mostly just kind of nitpick type stuff. I just I think this story is 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 a great read. I think it gets a little overplayed at, at times, but I don't know. I mean, isn't that the mark of any great story where, you know, you can debate how great it is, but not necessarily the fact that it's great. You know, you can. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of degree, not substance. Oh, yes. Uh, this does stand head and shoulders above a lot of the stuff that was put out in the 90s. You know, again, looking at that comic run page, I'm looking at all the issues that were number one for the month. The images are interesting. It's a lot of Lee and McFarlane and Liefeld stuff. Mm-hmm. But none of those stories, and, and I'm certain I read a lot of them, because if you were a kid in the 90s, I think you were obligated in some way to at least read some of the X-Men. But I don't remember much from those stories. The death and the, death and the reign of Superman stories, I remember them vividly. So I think that says a lot about about this story and about this about these creators at this time. Yeah, and the closest equivalent I can think of to, you know, Doomsday, Funeral for a Friend and then Reign of the Superman that any company, any other company attempted was the Clone Saga. And the fact is that storyline is almost universally panned. There are people out there who enjoy it. But there's nobody out there who would say that it's perfect just the way it is. You know, uh, there are major problems with that story, most of which are caused by behind the scenes fiddle fuckery going on with this marketing department or that editor in chief or whatever else. And to me, this is I, mean, I, don't, I don't mean this as a slam, but it kind of feels like the clone saga is Marvel trying to 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 be doomsday or or to be funeral for a friend or reign of the superman you know try to have that same sense of an event but then just fucking it up for themselves because they don't know ultimately how to tell that type of a story you know they can tell other types of stories but not specifically this kind or at least not with spider-man spider-man's not the kind of character to try telling the sort of story with so yeah Either way. Um, now, do you have any uh, any kind of parting shots on this? Anything that you want to throw in that we haven't already talked about? I don't I don't think we can say much more. I think this is this is a classic. If you want to personify the 90s and show the good of what came out of the 90s, this is what you show. Um, you you had a cohesive group of writers and artists working together to bring forth a really amazing story and a story that just didn't end with the death of Superman. It continued on after that and built upon it. So this is this is why, you know, th- this is why I love '90s comics. This story right here. Yeah, uh, between between this, the Ron Mars run on Green Lantern, the the Mark Wade run on Flash, and then the James Robinson Starman. Mm-hmm. those stories and those creators, those runs are why 
I will always believe that DC was the best comics uh, comics publisher of the 1990s. Mm-hmm. So that's just the way I feel about it. So they 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 weren't the most flashy, but they were the most. They they weren't the most they weren't the flashiest, but they were the best. Agreed. Well, nearly three hours of uh, discussion here. I didn't think it, I, I. I'll be honest with you. I thought we'd be lucky to get an hour and a half. So, <laughs> well, uh, first of all, thank you very much for uh, taking at this point nearly three hours uh, out of your schedule to join me. Now, uh, before you and I, you know, part ways here, why don't you tell everybody where it is that they can find you now that uh, just one of the guys, which you can still find back episodes of but now that just one of the guys has ended you know what are you up to these days well right now i'm still working with the two true freaks i'm you know uh, ironically i'm doing a couple of shows which you know you probably won't be listening to like who true freaks which is a doctor who podcast and walking dead wednesday i I completely understand uh i I just listened to at the time of this recording your discussion with chris honeywell about that (laughs) and i completely sympathize with you i know I get irate sometimes at Walking Dead's fan and Walking Dead fan who are just so up their own asses about the TV show, and I completely, you know, I completely can agree with you on that. So I do those shows over two freaks. My main show that I'm primarily working on is Listen to the Prophets, which is a Deep Space Nine podcast. Uh, myself and Paul Spataro and Andrew Leyland are taking a look episode by episode of what we consider to be the best Star Trek series after the original series. It's also considered to be sort of the redheaded stepchild of the Star Trek series, and we're trying to convince people that it's not. Hmm. Uh, I probably by this time finished up the uh, podcast Parallel Lines, which is a show that Michael Bradley and I took a look at the DC Comics Tangent Universe, which was uh, created by Dan Jurgens. Uh, that was a really bunch of fun episodes getting to do that. I also do the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror. Yes! Which is the uh, horror show that I do with Chris Honeywell, the hair metal hero Chris Tyler, and the Jack and Eddie brothers, Luke and Jason, where we're taking a look at just the breadth and width of horrordom out there. We uh, are starting to cover some Tomb of Dracula issues, and right now, uh, by the time this is released, we're probably looking into some of our viewers' choice episodes, which include uh, movies that uh, the various podcasters have decided they want to cover that aren't in a series. We finished up Friday the 13th, The Phantasm, and uh, probably by this time, uh, we may have an episode on Videodrome coming out mm-hmm. and maybe one on the uh, 1980s version, sort of the Harvey Weinstein version of uh, Friday the 13th and the movie called The Burning, which is uh, an interesting uh, show. But those are all those basically can all be found over at twotruefreaks.com where Trentus Magnus punches reality is. So just set your podcast browser there and find all the awesomeness. Awesome. Yeah, wow, that's uh, and here I thought you were gonna have a lighter schedule going forward, but I guess not. So uh, I'll, I'll find some ways to get my voice out there as as much as people may not be pleased by that. Okay, well as long as you don't take you know any of my comments as a, a slam on you personally, that's the main thing. Because God knows I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want you to feel that way. So I, I, I've never, I've never, you know, I've always felt people you know and luke jack kennedy has mentioned this before it's a quote from one of his favorite movies phantom paradise a song is a song you either like it or you don't 
and I hold no grudge with people who don't like the shows that I do. You know, you can this is this is a big pond here. We can all like individual things and dislike individual things so long as we're not always sniping each other about stuff. That's right. when I start getting irate. Right. Yeah. And again, it's 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 only been, you know, the properties themselves, the personalities uh, involved in those shows. I'm rather fond of. So, you know, hopefully, uh, hopefully they all understand that. But uh, absolutely. So as to uh, this week, I think that's pretty much it. You know, nearly three hours. I think that should be just about enough for anybody. Now, as to next week, I'm going to be talking about more. This is the end of goodness with uh, Nightfall coming under the uh, microscope this time so come back from uh, come back for that if that sounds like your brand of vodka but like i say as as to this week i think i'm pretty much done so bye everybody i will see you next week hallelujah we're out that's it My name is Stella, and I am the host of Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Backroll to Oracle is a podcast dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the mantle of Backroll for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1988. The goal of Backroll to Oracle is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Backroll and continuing through her tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at a vintage issue of Detective Comics or Batman, as well as other books like Justice League and Freedom Fighters, and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I have a revolving series of segments like Babs in the Tube, which highlights appearances of Babs in TV and film, Shipper Spotlight, which looks at a variety of comic and pop culture couples, gives their history, and determines whether they are hot or not, Reading with Stella, which could be described as an audio drama, or just me reading a book that relates to Babs or doesn't, and of course, the mainstay literature recommendation. I have been blessed to interview writers Scott Beatty and Chuck Dixon on their Backroll Year One work, Brian Q. Miller on his Backroll run, Dwayne Swarzynski and Christy Marks on their separate Birds of Prey work, and the creators and actors of the Backroll Spoiled, the web series. I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Find the show online at thebatmanuniverse.net and iTunes, and follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Batgirl to Oracle. Thank you, and fly on, Babs lovers. Here at Quarks, customer satisfaction is our primary concern. I'd say we just found our way into a wormhole. I'm Kira Norris. Lieutenant Commander Worf reporting for duty, sir. You're the best crew any captain ever had. This may be the last time we're all together. This will shortly become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. For Starfleet, one of our most important posts. It is quite simply, Commander. The journey you have always been destined to take. Sensors are not functioning. We've lost all contact with the space station. What the hell is happening out there?
killed her. Damage report. Battle stations. I'm Captain Benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Listen to the prophets. A Deep Space Nine Two True Freaks presentation with Sean Engel and Andrew Leyland. And now with 100% more Paul Spataro. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at Trentus Magnus at gmail.com Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday and that's a promise Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows That's right Simply click the PayPal link donate any amount at all Tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play, Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Do not remove this tag under penalty of law. All models are over the age of 18. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacore of Milan, Italy.